March. The smell of baseball in the air, and that's about as good as it gets unless it's college ball or minor league baseball. Otherwise, it's a lot of lawyers trying to negotiate back and forth, and we'll see what happens in Major League Baseball and the Players Association a little bit later. Updates on that with Bobby Nightingale Jr. Uh, that's coming up after 2.30. Uh, a busy afternoon, actually. We'll talk to Dr. Donna Schlehek from Wright State University, Professor Emeritus, and a former head of political science uh, about the latest with Ukraine and Russia and what's going on, what to expect, and so forth. Also with Bachfest going on, lots of people uh, roaming around, enjoying themselves uh, around downtown and elsewhere with the Bach beers. And I, I, want, I don't really understand. I had a, a guy ask me, he's only lived in, in the tri-state for about a year, two years, I guess. And he's like, what's the Bach Fest about? And, and I, he goes, I don't understand the goats. And then I was like, I don't understand the goats, so why not get somebody on? So we'll do that about 1235, and we'll talk about it. But to start, uh, a guy that I, I've talked to off and on anytime I've had questions about bugs and strange other things to sort of go along with that, uh, he is uh, basically the, the, the Buckeye Bug Doctor. He, he is Dr. David Shetler. Welcome to 700 WLW with Sterling. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Sterling. Good. I appreciate you making time. Uh, this is uh, with the warm weather, uh, always the time when people start thinking about fleas and ticks and mosquitoes and gardening. And then <laughs> I see this story that uh, I have a number of people send me saying, what about this invasive spider? It's supposed to blanket the East Coast. And I'm like, I don't know. And, and I go, well, I'll, I'll look up the information. Jarrow spider, I think is what it's called. It's another invasive species. And I go, well, it kind of looks like a crazy cool garden spider. So why not get the bug doctor on? So Dr. David Shetler, uh, professor uh, now emeritus, I guess, technically also you at the Ohio State University. What is the deal with this spider? Should we be all frightened, scared, and, and hiding in our houses after everything else going on now? <laughs> Well, my feeling is is, is uh, are those people that that are arachnophobes that, that have a severe fear of spiders, uh, yeah, you're probably going to be upset with this one. Not not a fan. Uh, huh? uh, uh, well, you know, as as a person that that's reared spiders, uh, you know, in, in my youth, I had tarantulas as quote pets. I have to admit, tarantulas don't really make a pet. It's not going to, you know, crawl up in your lap and purr like a kitty cat. But they are awesome. Gonna... My uncle had one. <laughs> and, and the way they shed their skin, for those who don't know, is they basically cut an escape hatch in the top of their, their backside on top, I guess, right? And sort of leave. And then it just yep. looks like there's another spider hanging out. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that always freaks out uh, people that, that rear uh, insects as well as spiders, uh, because also when they molt uh, or shed their exoskeleton like that, they usually are don't have much pigmentation in in the body yet, so they look like an albino. Oh, really? And I've had that. people, yeah, yeah, I've had I've had people who say, you know, I, uh, I looked in my cage and I've got an albino cockroach. No, you have a cockroach that just shed its exoskeleton. Which leads me to and another thing. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, stop. There was a kid named Jason who lived down the street from me when I was a kid, and he had hissing cockroaches as a pet in these little, uh -huh. it was, I lived in an apartment. I guess it's supposed to be a good apartment pet. I told my mother, and she was like, there's no way you're bringing roaches into this house. And uh, and I was like, well, I think the turtle might eat them. And she was like, no, 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 no. So people have cockroaches as pets. Well, actually, I did that with my daughter. Uh, you know, she kept harassing me uh, the, that she wanted a, a gerbil or a guinea pig or a mouse or a rat or something. And 
you know, I've, I've raised those things, and, and they stink. They they pee, they poop, uh, they, they make all kinds of messes. They're gnawing everything. So one day I, I came home with a little aquarium with a couple of hissing cockroaches in it, and 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 uh, she you know, looked at him, well, Dad, that's not really what I was thinking of. And I said, but think of this. They only produce dry fecal pellets. Uh, and you can give them a little water out of a dish on the side. So uh, in reality, you're not going to have to clean the cage probably once, uh, uh, maybe once every other month is all you're going to need to clean that cage. Low maintenance. She says, oh, <laughs> Not a bad. And then, deal. of course, when she showed her, she showed her friends. She, everybody thought, "Oh, this is cool." And, and so, all of a sudden, it was cool to, to have the hissing cockroaches. Why not? Now, <laughs> do, do how long? What is the life expectancy, barring a, a stomping foot or the, you know the, the pest control guy spraying the wrong part of the house? I mean, how, like I, the box turtle I have will likely outlive me. I think the longest in captivity from what I've heard is like 115 <laughs> years old. No matter how healthy, how much running, how much good food, how much yogurt and how much sleep I get and back off all the good time stuff, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not going to make 115, but I could outlive probably your average everyday hissing cockroach, yes? Yeah, and, and, but if you think about it, uh, mice and, uh, usually only live about two years, two and a half years, and a hissing cockroach lifespan is also about two and a half years. Not so bad, not bad. It's about the same. Yeah. <laughs> Now, well, let's get to the spider. Somebody just messaged me again and said, get back to the spider. Uh, so somebody, as you mentioned, the arachnophobe mindset, right? So explain the Jaro spider. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's another invasive species. It's somewhere from Asia, correct? And somehow now it's making its way up the East Coast. Well, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people that's not necessarily overly politically correct. Uh, uh, this is another gift from China. Uh, the, the reality is, is that it does live through uh, a lot of the, the Asian continent uh, in both uh, the semi-tropical and, and the uh, uh, moderate uh, temperature zones. Uh, and uh, apparently, you know, with, with just like uh, China has uh, given us the Asian longhorn beetle and, and some other invasive insects, uh, there was probably an egg case uh, of this spider uh, that's been sort of tracked down to some goods that were sent uh, to uh, northern Georgia, uh, and nobody detected the egg case. And of course, it hatched out. and And each one of these egg cases can contain a couple of hundred little spiderlings. Oh. Uh, and and since nobody noticed it, <laughs> bingo! All of a sudden, uh, we we have a population. And and again. I'm always amused at how little people notice anything until it really hits them in the face. Um, and, <laughs> that's, uh, bad, that's a bad <laughs> thought when it comes to spiders, it, 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 just in general. It, well, it, and, and that's that's what happens with people all the time with these. These build, uh, you know, uh, two and a half to three foot diameter orb webs. What's an and orb web? I mean, because uh, I'm well, like, imagine me as a four-year-old. Okay, well, that's the spider that makes that uh, sort of a spokes of a wheel and then a spiral webbing okay. that goes around those spokes, and then the spider sits in the middle of that web. Those are orb weavers. Okay. And, and this one makes a giant orb web, and, and we do have a giant orb weaver in the United States. Uh, it, it's called a golden silk spider that uh, is down in the Gulf Coast uh, up 
probably up in, into South Carolina, but it builds a giant orb web that's usually about 15 to 20 feet or higher up above us. Okay. So we never run into it. But, but this uh, uh, Joro spider often builds its webs pretty close to the ground. So if you're not paying attention, you run into that web, you know you've run into something. Are, are, they, are they poisonous? <laughs> uh, will they eat other bugs that we need here? Or is it just going to sort of fit in and coexist like everything else and it's just something else for us to, to look at and, and be amazed by or frightened of? Sure. Well, it, it, you know, entomologists have a different point of view. Uh, of I've, course. <laughs> I've always stated <laughs> all spiders are poisonous. The real question is, are they poisonous to us? Okay. okay. Spiders typically have venom that, that's designed to subdue uh, an insect prey, something that they catch in their web or something they stumble across and subdue it that way. Uh, the vast majority of spiders' jaws, the the thing, the... Uh, the fangs that they use are actually so small that they have a hard time actually penetrating human skin. They, they're uh, designed to penetrate something smaller. Okay. Uh, now, uh, the, the literature that I'm checking out on, on this one is that this one has venom that is no more uh, dangerous than our common golden garden spider, another one of our big orb weavers that people run into in, the, in their garden, and they go, oh, look at that giant spider over there. And, yeah, and they're pretty. Yeah, they're they're good to look at. So, isn't, it, and, isn't it pretty? Yeah. And, and spiders <laughs> in, in general and bugs and overall, as long as they're not in the house or infesting you, and I don't want to bring up bed bugs, which we, we know in this part of the world it's it's pretty bad. I Just even thinking about it, I'm itching sure. now. Um, but yeah. generally, they all serve a purpose. So if this spider is not that big of a deal, at least at this point, as far as we know, with the warm weather coming, what should we expect here? I mean, I, I mentioned the fleas, the ticks, all that stuff you can uh, you know, worry about maybe sure. with the yard and the pets and so forth. But what else is, is really something emerging now or should be soon as we start spending more time, hopefully, outside in uh, our yards and parks and everything else, which we have a whole bunch of here in this part of the world? Sure. I was I was out uh, cleaning out my flower beds uh, yesterday and, and pruning my fruit trees uh, for the spring pruning, and uh, it was very evident that there were several different species of flies. Um, and, and, of course, as an entomologist that taught forensic entomology, I recognized them pretty quickly, uh, that most of these were blue bottle flies and, and some uh, uh, what we call cluster flies. Now, the blue bottle flies are ones that do, uh, how do I put this delicately, uh, have their larvae feed on dead animals that uh, have, have been killed during the wintertime. It's, it's one that can operate at cooler temperatures, uh, and that's different than our green bottle fly that we normally see, the rather large, bright, iridescent green one. Uh, that one attacks uh, dead bodies during the, the warmer parts of the season which so, leads me to something else that is of interest and i know i derail this all the time but my mind just spins thinking about this but studying forensic entomology and doing what you've done uh, at the ohio state university and now professor emeritus there dr david shetler with sterling on the big one is that this is one of those things where it comes to um you know a coroner's offices investigations for finding dead people so on is where these bugs you, you studying this can sort of see how long they've been there what has eaten them and in, in, in all i mean you you can do a lot looking at that type of uh, a bit of stuff, right? What's yeah. in the bug's belly, uh, <laughs> and how much skin well, is I, left I, on us, actually right? What we, yeah, actually, what we do is we look at the development of the insect. Uh, most of these flies 
uh, take about, oh, maybe 10 days to finish their larval development, and then they'll take another 14 to 20 days to fin finish their pupil development. So if we're ever called on what, what we call, what I call a dead body crime scene, uh, and if there are maggots on that body, uh, we can collect the maggots and, and trace that back uh, and give you an estimate of when was this body exposed to the environment uh, where flies laid, laid their eggs on it. So that's awesome. So that, that's what we do in forensic entomology. Yeah. yeah. So now, do you get used to that smell at any point? I mean, at some time, because I've, I've taken a tour, say, of, of the morgue in the past, and they're in there working, even if they don't bring you in because out of respect for the dead, there is a... Sure. There is an odor about decaying flesh, be it animal or human, doing what you've done. I mean, do you get used to that? You wearing some type of ventilator? How how do you getting around that? How do you navigate that? Uh, I would say that you can get used to it, but most of us have some little tricks of the trade. Uh, there there are some creams and ointments that that have peppermint or or spearmint uh, that you can sort of smear now i've got a mustache i can just smear it across my mustache so <laughs> when i'm next, next next to a pretty stinky uh a body uh, all i'm smelling is peppermint <laughs> you know in, in our, all the conversations we've had the fact that here we are we start with spiders we work through summer and warm weather past and we start thinking about the forensic end of this i never once thought we'd talk about salves ointments creams and lotions with the <laughs> dr shetler the bug doctor on the big one with sterling i mean it never entered my mind i mean that seems like something. It's like, oh, I feel I need some uh, lotion, or it just never occurred to me. That's it's odd. Uh, all right, so so th that's just fantastic. Just thinking about that overall, uh, and really the history of it, and how it has progressed with investigation and everything, uh, just in nature, and we are certainly a part of that. Uh, we're short on time. I I'm curious. Of all the things that people are working on or thinking about, warm weather. There's the issue of pests. There's stuff that aren't really pests that people have by way of uh, pesticides and so forth, we're seeing problems with globally, and certainly here with pollinators and so forth. In short order, can you explain what uh, you know someone in their backyard can do that's fairly easy, low maintenance, that might maybe help that, as well as give you something nice to look at in the yard? Sure, I, I think the, the most obvious thing, what I've done in, in my yard, I've made a, a conscious effort of trying to plant both annuals and perennials that provide flowers, nectar, and pollen sources for pretty much the whole season. So I've, oh, cool. I've got early spring flowers, I've got midsummer flowers, and I've got fall flowers. And, and I'm constantly being visited by uh, at least 15 different species of bees, several flies and some beetles, and of course the butterflies and moths uh, that are also pollinators that we often forget about. That's awesome. Uh, and, and as far as the idea of Say you can buy those little bee houses, which is sort of like a birdhouse, and they say put it in one direction or another in the yard. This is about the time of year, right? You put them out there. Uh, are those worthwhile? Is that something to do? Can that help, or is that just somebody coughing up some you know, stuff to people to buy and waste yeah. their money on? Well, I have a, a sort of a different view of that. I sort of view it like uh, if you really read about feeding birds, they tell you, be prepared to keep feeding the birds. You you can't uh, feed the birds and get them to expect to find food, and then you just quit all of a sudden. Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing if you buy these bee houses. The bee houses, you don't just put them out there and walk away. There's maintenance that is involved with that. And so uh, usually once a year, those bee houses have to be cleaned out 
uh, because if you don't clean them and regularly maintain them, uh, there's a whole bunch of little uh, diseases and parasites that will build up in those and will make it actually worse for the bees than not having the house there at all. Uh-oh. All right, so there is some work to do anyway. All right, I can't be complete lazy Absolutely. sloth. All right, that's not, a, that's not a good thing. All right, so we can look more into that. What is the website? You have a bunch of different resources that uh, is able to be basically perused by anybody, yes? Well, uh, we, we always have our Ohio line, but what I usually try to direct people, if you want to know what's going on in, in Ohio landscapes, uh, go to our Beagle, our Buckeye Yard and Garden line. It's We call it the Beagle because it's just B-Y-G-L dot O-S-U dot E-D-U. Oh, that's easy. And, and yeah, and it's pretty easy. And, and there's constant postings of everybody around the state that's involved in our Ohio State Extension uh, on uh, things that are going on in your yard and garden. Excellent. Okay, so that's good. And I'll tweet that out here in just a bit. Uh, the other thing that comes up, regularly and because it's a pest and there are a lot of services you can go buy something off the shelf or have somebody come and, and sort of uh, spray or, or fumigate or, or dust your yard whatever it is <laughs> mosquitoes are a big problem no one wants malaria or whatever else they bring certainly itchy scratchy and some people like me wherever you are you can be you know have a crowd of like 10 people around no one else is getting uh, eaten up i'm the one making a blood donation like i'm going to the hawksworth blood center and, and, I'm, <laughs> and i'd rather go to hawksworth than give it up to some mosquitoes what can people do that's not going to cause a problem and wreak havoc with other parts of the, the whole environment and ecosystem in the yard? Well, the, the best thing to do, there's actually two things. Number one, do a water, water audit in your yard and on your house. Make sure there's no standing water that can stand after a rainfall event for 10 days because that's how long it takes for a mosquito to complete its life cycle. I'm not a real fan of all these sprays and fogs that are going on for mosquitoes because we do know that those can adversely affect other insects, including the beneficial ones. Okay. Uh, and, and so uh, I, you know, I just uh, spray myself. I, I'm a, allergic to DEET, but I'm not allergic to Picardin. Uh, and, and so I just spray myself from head to foot with Picardin when I'm ready to go out in the garden during the summertime and I don't have any problem with mosquitoes then. So I don't need the big net. I've seen Willie in her around the station, but I think it's for retention where he wears like a big <laughs> net sort of thing. It's almost like the, the guys from uh, and girls from ODOT you see working late at night on 71 <laughs> or 75 that, that have those big dome lights above them with the net over their head or whatever it is working on the road. It, it's very bewildering, right. but we love our Willie just the same. Uh, what have I not asked that is relevant to this conversation when it comes to bugs, insects, spiders, or whatever else that you could share? Because I know I don't have all the questions, even though I have many. Well, I guess uh, the, my major response to most people is don't think that your first line of defense is spraying something or fogging something or doing something like that. Think of other things that we used to do. I, I mean, I've got several fly swatters in my house, and if there's a fly, I don't reach for a can and, and spritz it. Uh, I just reach for the fly swatter and smack it. Uh, now, other things, like if a creepy crawly like a spider gets into my house, uh, I've trained myself, and, and I, uh, we know that we have a, a little plastic cup in the kitchen. We run in there, grab it, uh, coax the spider in the cup, and toss it back outside. And then I know I need to check the door seals because that spider's not a Houdini spider. It didn't magically appear in my house. 
uh, it got in through a little crack or crevice, probably under the door someplace. Which that's auditing all the entrance spaces to your house anyway is probably good to help with heating and air conditioning, let alone the insect issue. I, I And we're short on time. We talked about this before. My uncle got, uh, he was beat down emotionally and otherwise by my aunt. She had a spider in the closet near her shoes that she had kept alive at seemingly for a couple of years. And he didn't know, thought he was going to be nice and clean up the, the closet and the whole house. And apparently, while vacuuming, sucked that dude up or dudette. I don't know. And, and uh, my aunt, for the, right. yeah. she still brings that up today, and it's been years. So you know, just look out for the spiders. Some people have good love. You can you put them out, but sometimes you just got to stomp them. I mean, let's just be honest. Sure. You know, I love yeah. them. I want to take care of them. But there are occasional times I get a little creeped out, and it's me or the spider. The spider's losing every time. Is that bad? And and for, and that's that. No, let's face it. There are plenty of spiders to replace that spider uh, in our environment. The, the wait a minute. I don't like the way. Wait a minute. I don't like the way that sounds at all. The plenty to replace them means they're in the attic and, and walking on me. And I don't. I don't like that at all. Always great information. Good conversation. Thank you for making time on on a Sunday afternoon talking to David Shetler, Professor Emeritus Entomology, uh, the Ohio State University, talking bug stuff. Always a pleasure. I'll tweet your stuff so people can find you. Thanks for making time my man sure enjoyed it take care of yourself well we'll come back after your 1230 report we'll talk box fest because beer is good sterling 700 wlw what is taking place in ukraine now is horrific civilians are being killed and wounded the violence keeps getting uh, much more bloody the russian invasion of ukraine the resistance is keeping strong the ukrainians are fighting for their country listen for the latest news and analysis every family every man every woman will fight on 700 wlw here in the Buckeye State, more than two million men are open. What's going on with Ukraine and Russia and what could be next? Craziness. It's the best way to describe it. We'll also talk to Bobby Nightingale Jr. about 2.35. See, there should be a spring training Reds baseball here from the desert in Arizona, but there is no baseball. If you don't know at this point what's going on, there is a lockout in the owners and the Players Association I uh, haven't been able to rework some deals and so forth, so uh, we'll talk to Bobby Nightingale Jr. Uh, about that issue and where they stand and when they'll play, if they'll play, and so on. But first, uh, because it's a, a beautiful Sunday, uh, most Sundays it's good for drinking beer, but uh, this Sunday extra special. I think it's like the 30th anniversary of Bachfest, and a, a, a buddy of mine, a neighbor, uh, say, hey, trying to ex- have me explain, and I realized I didn't know the full history of Bachfest, and then asked me, oh, I saw goats on TV, Sterling. What the hell's the deal about the goats? I was like, I don't really know. So I was like, why not reach out to Bach Fest and, and find out? And apparently there is like a boss, the executive director of Bach Fest, a, a guy by the name of Stephen Hampton. Welcome to 700 WLW, actually the executive director of the Brewer District Community Urban Redevelopment Corporation. Uh, that That is a nice title. Mine just says mouth. Uh, how are you, sir? How is everything? And what a weekend for Bach Fest. I am doing fantastic. We are having a great time down here. Yes, the, the weather has been spectacular. Uh, and, and and everybody's loving it. Uh, help me explain to uh, my friend and, and uh, anyone else who doesn't know, because obviously not everyone is aware of the history of Bogfest and what it's about in it in the great rich history that I think most people are aware of when you think about Cincinnati and you think about the tri-state and beer. Yeah, so Bach beer dates back to medieval times, and German monks brewed Bach beer to get through the Lenten fasting season. 
So it's always been a springtime beer, and pre-prohibition breweries in Cincinnati would always release their, their beers at the same time. 30 years ago, when Hootapult Shaling brought back Christian Moorline Bach beer, they wanted to like kind of celebrate that, that idea. And so they partnered with Arnold's and some of the businesses on Main Street and over the Rhine and created Bach Fest. And ever since then, we've been celebrating uh, over the Rhine and its brewing heritage, uh, the coming of spring, and, of course, great Bach beer, which we have lots of here in Cincinnati these days. And if you were going to explain it uh, to anyone who's not necessarily a connoisseur of beer, uh, I mean, there are a variety of different styles and types from cream ales, obviously, to, you know, like a dark beer yep. to a hoppy beer, which I, I like in my, in my share of the IPAs. Explain what the, the hops is and, and how does that compare? This is fantastic. Somebody just messaged me. What about mead, Sterling? So, Stephen, what about mead as well? Where does mead fit into the mix of the, the beers and so forth? I, 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 I thought it was the paper people. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so beer, lots of different flavors. Bach beer is typically very malty. Uh, it's a little bit heartier, uh, a lot of kind of bread and biscuity and kind of sweeter tones. Um, so that's typically what your, your uh, box are. Even within that, of course, there's lighter boxes. Stoppel boxes are much darker. There's a, a lot of variety in there. Um, we've got uh, 34 different local Bach beers on draft, so you can kind of wow. try them all if you want. Uh, but, you know, the thing about Bach beer is, again, it was brewed through that Latin fasting season. It's got a little bit more kick, typically a little bit more alcohol than a normal beer. And that's actually where the goats come into play. Um, you know, uh, thank the, you for doing that, by the way. Of- <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to circle back around to get to the goats. Because immediately, I'm like, do, do you eat the goats? Are they just running around? Whose goats are they? Are they the fainting goats? They're not full size. They look like little mini pygmy goats. Uh, it's very confusing. It is. So, so the, the real story is that, you know, it was a first brewer near Einbach, Germany. It kind of got... Uh, conflated to Einbach, which is the German word for goat. But there's a more fun story about a Renaissance drinking contest. One of the guys got up and he tripped over the goat in the bar and lost the contest and blamed it on the goat. But the goat's (laughs) always been a symbol of Bach beer. And so we embraced that heartily. Our our parade on Friday night was led by a real goat pulling a keg of beer, uh, our sausage queen, and a giant Trojan goat. So we we celebrate the the goat and and the Bach and and all that together. And and they don't usually do what you want them to do when you want a goat to do something. So how do you convince a goat, one, to pull a big thing of beer, let alone hang out and be social on the streets of downtown Cincinnati? It's very – because, I mean, I've seen goats. You can't even hand them food and have them do what you want when you've got food. It it is very tricky. We have – we usually have – it tends to be the more senior goats that are a little more chill – that are the ones pulling the goat keg because, uh, yeah, the young ones, yeah, just uh, exactly do what they want to do. So we've, we've got some great partners at, like, Good Green Earth that uh, that bring their goats out every year. And uh, I just uh, didn't I didn't know if they were drinking a lot of the Bachfest beer themselves or exactly how that worked. <laughs> then I'm thinking Pete is going to be involved. I'm like, it's the 30th year. Please let them be alone. Let, let's get out and about. <laughs> and, and with the pandemic, it's nice to see so many people out and about. So th- this wraps it up today. Uh, and uh, that's sort of still some good time. Stephen Hampton, by the way, executive director of the Brewery District Urban Development Corporation, talking about Bachfest with Sterling on the big one. What's left to do? Is it all over uh, OTR? Where I mean, there's a bunch of different places involved with Bachfest. Yeah, so we've got about a dozen and a half participating bars and restaurants and breweries and over the Rhine and downtown, a few other breweries around Cincinnati. Uh, we also have a big temporary Bachfest hall that we're set up at Finley Playground right next to Finley Market nice. in the heart of the brewery district. Uh, we still have today, we've got plenty of Bach beer to drink. We've got a pig roast down here, mm. uh, great music, and then uh, our kind of capping event. So we have our Bachfest 5K on Saturday morning, which is great with the Flying Pig folks. 
But for those of you who maybe, you know, drank a little too much Bach beer or aren't quite ready for the K, we have a .05K run, which is 164 feet. Run, walk, crawl it. You get the uh, T-shirt, the beer medal, uh, the can opener, uh, you know, medal, uh, and and your drink at the end, just like well, just like the big runners. So it's 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 a fun way to cap off the weekend. It is, and I'll be telling you here I, for the last ten years or so, I've been I've been like, you know what, I'm going to do the flying pig. I'm going I'm going to work up to the flying pig. I'll do the half marathon, and I haven't done any of that because I, I think wow, that's a, even a half marathon's a long way. That's a decent clip, and and that's why I drive. I, I mean, you know. it's it, there's a reason I have a car. So this 164 feet .05 kind of trek is perfect for me. Even with a beer in hand, I think most people could pull that off. Most people do, yeah. We have uh, the, the finishing rate's pretty. I think we're right at 100%, so yeah. That's huge. So what if I not ask, what should someone know right now? They're on the fence. They're like, well, I can just stay in the backyard and kick back. What's going to bring me downtown if it's not already in walking distance coming across the bridge from Covington or Newport or maybe even driving down from Dayton or, or anywhere else in, in and around the Miami Valley, the tri-state or region, if you will? We've got a full crowd down here. It's a great day to be outside. Again, we're celebrating the coming of spring. What better way to do it? Go outside, hang out with some of your friends, and drink some beer. Not too bad at all. 30th anniversary. It's crazy. It doesn't seem like it's been going on that long, especially when you see like all, you know the, the, these guys walking around with goats. You think it's like you know the middle evil times or something. It's just insane. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of monks, a lot of goats, all that running around all weekend. Yeah, and and, uh, and I, I I thought about being a monk, but and then somebody's like the silence. You could you could be a silent monk, and I was like, I don't know if I could pull that off. <laughs> I, I tried that on the radio, and it didn't work so well. Uh, Stephen Hampton, thank you for making time and doing what you do uh, with uh, everything uh, dealing with the, the brewery district and, and the redevelopment and obviously the rich history with the, uh, the the beer trail and everything else in and around Cincinnati is fantastic. And the web uh, page, for those who don't uh, already know, is bockfest.com. Any final thoughts before I let you bounce, Stephen? Uh, just, uh, just let's have a great spring and, uh, keep celebrating. There you go. Be back together with folks. Absolutely. It's a fantastic thing to finally be able to see some shiny, happy faces, uh, outside in, in large groups, having a good time and, uh, masked or, or otherwise uh, nice to see uh, faces without masks. So that's a good thing. Hopefully people are having a good time. Steven, thanks for making time. I appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the Sunday. All right. Thanks. You too. Take care of yourself. That's Steve Hampton. Uh, and uh, looking at the, the beer uh, history and, and the redevelopment of everything, dealing with uh, all that stuff here in Cincinnati uh, with the Brewery District, which is pretty nice. The 30th anniversary of Bachfest, which is just tremendous. Uh, lots more to do this Sunday afternoon. Uh, in a bit, Dr. Donna Schlake is going to join us. Uh, we'll uh, talk on the issues of everything going on. Um, in and around Russia and Ukraine. we got Bobby Nightingale Jr. Uh, we'll talk to him about 2.35 when it should have been baseball time uh, from the desert on the big one, but uh, not a lot of baseball going on, at least at the college level there is, and sooner than later some minor league action. And uh, something very disturbing to me, um, There, and maybe this is something that's been going on, maybe it's something that... Uh, is it really maybe a good idea? I, I don't know why I didn't get paid, but apparently the idea of paying kids to go to school at the elementary school level uh, is becoming a thing. If you've got kids, maybe you're already cashing in by sending them to school and getting more than just the education, cold hard cash. I'll explain. Is that a good idea? Should we be paying kids to go to school sort of like going to work since we are all most of us anyway motivated by that uh, that cash money? I mean, I love what I do here. Alex, you know, uh, is, and so many people in producing the show, part of it, we all love it. 
But without money, you're not going to work. I'm probably not going to work. So uh, we'll find, what about paying kids to go to school? Is that a good idea? Quick break, come back. I'll explain, give you a chance to get interactive on a Sunday afternoon, Sterling. 513-749-7000. 800-THE-BIG-ONE. Pound 700 AT&T. And I'm on Twitter, at Sterling Radio. This is the Nation Station. 700 WLW. I know sometimes you're worried, sometimes you feel unsure, sometimes you're downright frightened. But stand tall, my friend, and fear not. Willie's here. Bill Cunningham, tomorrow at 12 noon on 700 WLW. And it's about time that Bill Cunningham gets a little respect. Hey, glad you're along. Sunday Sterling, 700 WLW. I had my times wrong. 107, actually, when we're going to talk to Dr. Donna Schleich about uh, Ukraine and Russia with an update. Big news and how it affects all of us. Uh, and if you're driving around right now and you've had to get some fuel, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it goes certainly deeper than that when you think about our uh, responsibilities uh, with NATO and, and uh, the weird everything that's going on there. So we'll talk to her uh, just after the one o'clock report and Bobby Nightingale Jr. a little bit later. All right, here's the deal. Uh, the phone line's open. Uh, we got a, a little bit of time before the news, give you a chance to get interactive. I, I mentioned this. So uh, one of the schools actually that, that I, I have found this out about, and maybe it's going on already. Here's the question. Should we, that is the we the people who pay for schools uh, generally by way of uh, property taxes in Ohio, if you're not coughing up cash to go uh, to parochial school or something along those lines, a private school. There are four uh, Northwest Dayton, Ohio schools that have uh, announced, one of which, by the way, I used to go to. E.J. Brown, uh, now it's a middle school. It was an elementary school uh, when I was just a little sterling at the time. And uh, a couple other schools, they are paying kids to go to school. Not just the education, which has great value, but the motivation that most of us have to show up or, or to do whatever it is that we do is for that money. This is giving kids uh, gift cards to go to school with better, uh, like two straight weeks of perfect attendance. They'll give them like 25 bucks. Uh, they do it for another couple of weeks. They get some more money. And uh, if they continue to do that and stay out of trouble also, their parents can get some cash. Uh, of some, uh, you know, more gift cards, 50 bucks or whatever. And it, it comes from private funds. It's it's not uh, one of those situations where it is coming from uh, your taxes or my taxes, but it, it is a concept, I guess, the, the idea of motivating parents to help get their kids to school and kids motivated to get there and hopefully perform well. And all of us, most of us are, look, the, the Major League Players Association and Major League owners right now with that lockout as they lock the players out, that's about money, right? All the talk about uh having a hard time finding people to get to work and everything else with all the stuff through the pandemic's been about money, right? I mean, more than anything else, it's like, oh, people don't respect me. You know how respect is shown generally? Cash. I get paid, you get paid, whatever it is. You think, well, I'm getting disrespected. I'm not getting the love that I should get. I appreciate you being nice and, you know, with a friendly face, but where's my money? So if we want kids to go to school, if it's not already ingrained in them and there's an attendance problem, I can kind of rationalize to a point the idea of doing whatever it is that you can to get kids motivated on their own, if not with the help of parents, to show up. I don't know where my money was. Nobody, And I actually was a decent student at that point when I was just a, an elementary school kid. 513-749-7000, the big one, pound 700 AT&T. The problem with this, I can see... Is it's, I suppose it's possible that there are kids that could end up going, well, I'm not going to pay much more attention or show up if I'm not continually getting that money. 
rather than worried about as they progress to, you know, middle school to high school and so on. Even though the education hopefully gives them the skills and the opportunity to go earn that money pursuing whatever dreams that an individual has to, to do uh, professionally, career-wise for their life, where they want to be a plumber or a pipe fitter or a welder or a doctor or a lawyer or for some reason misguided enough to want to be on the radio, whatever else it is, uh, it, it's about passion, but it's also about getting paid, right? So is this a, a good precedent, a bad precedent, where there are problems with attendance and uh, behavior issues, if money can motivate and it can come from a private source or you can get someone who can sponsor it, maybe that's a good idea. I mean, we don't pay teachers enough at this point, really. I mean, of all the stuff we talk about valuing and what matters, teachers, police, I mean, you know, the kids, they're our future. I've heard that song. I believe in children. Uh, they're our future, right? Let them lead the way or whatever. 513-749-7800, the big one pound, 700 at t Terry, what about paying kids to go to school? Good idea, bad idea, even if it comes from private funds, and it's only like 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever. No, 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 no. Okay. Nobody paid me to go to school. Well, I didn't get it paid either, I know. It took me 17 years to pay off my student loans to go to college. So, I mean... Where is the motivation to make yourself better? Well, well, if the kids are, I guess here's the devil's advocate question, Terry. And I get what you're saying. I have many friends still paying off student loans, and now they've got their own kids in college, which is also troubling. Uh, and they're paying for some of that, too. Is that if you have parents that aren't getting those kids up and motivated, they're coming from maybe deprived homes, situations not maybe necessarily the best, if that can get that kid who's in elementary or middle school maybe a little more motivated, even for that little bit of cash, if it's coming from a private source, I don't know about you know the idea of public funds, certainly. You think if that could make a difference of having a kid show up because they didn't have the motivation and the direction that you had, Terry, would that be a good thing, or is that still bad? I think it's a bad thing. Okay. I think society today is just crippling people. Nobody has any motivation to do anything better for themselves or for society. Why is that, do you think? I uh, Just because they they don't know better. Yeah, that that comes from the home, sports. right? Yes, it comes from the home. They don't know. They're not taught that. They're not given anything. They have to earn it. That's that's the idea, uh, and I get that, Terry. I appreciate it. I, you can hear the frustration uh, in her voice, and, and I totally get it. And when I first saw the story, and somebody else mentioned it to me, I had a few people over the last couple of days send me this story. And I'm, I'm looking at it, and then it lists the schools, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I went to one of those schools. Now, it was an elementary school. They've since torn it down and rebuilt, and it's, it's a, a middle school now. But nobody was paying me to go. I got an education. Hell, mom made me go even when there was no class because I forgot the, the little note that said they were closed for some in-school thing one day. And then I got stuck with nowhere to go till uh, my babysitter arrived. You know, I'm walking uphill both ways to schools and all that other stuff. But if you're motivated to go to work uh, and do better because of money and I'm motivated because I have maybe an incentive to show up because I'm getting paid and you come from a home or a neighborhood or a house where parents necessarily don't have that history uh, of uh uh, being able to get up and go and earn and, and didn't come from the best situation, and then their kids are in it to break that cycle. If there's a private entity that wants to contribute to this and do it, 
I guess the question is, does it work? The superintendent of the Dayton schools, uh, Elizabeth Lawley, uh, says, talking to Channel 7 up in Dayton, says it's important for our students and families to be in school, and if we need to incentivize them to do that, we're going to do it. Is that the right idea when it comes to getting kids to show up and be ready to learn in a classroom setting? Ryan, it's your turn with Sterling on the big one. Hey. Hey, how are you? I think I'm all right. I wonder where my money is. I mean, I, I went to, I went to that school. I was a halfway decent student. Half the time, I should have at least gotten one of these gift cards. I mean, what the hell? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think you do what you need to do to get the kids in school. I mean, I, it's, you know, the old game that they didn't do it for me or, or whatever, you know. I, give them a couple bucks to go to school. I mean, the, the amount of money, the disparity in money, you know, in our society is, is ridiculous. 50 bucks to go to school, sure. I mean, if it works, right? Let's see the results of it. If it doesn't work, then stop doing it. But, yeah, let's get them in school. That's not necessarily a bad idea. Uh, it, would have that made a difference in how you handled going to school yourself or if you have kids? Because, I mean, I remember I my cousins would get paid for better grades, and my mom never incentivized me getting better grades either. It was like, well, maybe we'll get some ice cream. I'm like, well, what's that about? Uh, I did get a little bit of money for better grades, but I mean, I'm talking about elementary school and it's like five or 10 bucks, you know, I mean, I, I don't see a problem with it. I, you know, times change. I, I think more ideas thinking outside the box is good. I think the next step is, is private individuals paying teachers more. I mean, let's get teachers more money too, right? When you say private individuals, in other words, aside from what we're already taxed, depending if it's a, a public school, you're saying that what we, we should like as a benefactor go here, here's a grand. I'm going to just donate it to maybe your school in your neighborhood or where you went to try to help facilitate fattening the pockets of teachers who aren't really compensated reasonably. I mean, is that what you mean? Like you would donate money? Well, I, what about an endowment? I mean, you're talking about universities with endowments. What, why are we running universities like these, you know, for profit, ridiculous uh, cost entities and then the flip side in, in public schools don't run like that at all. I mean, I, it's no secret, I think, that the more money schools, the, the better they do. Just look at your, your private schools and your inner city schools across the nation. So let's even the playing field up a bit. And, and you know, yeah, if I had the money and the means, especially if I was a minority, you're absolutely right I would. I'd be doing what LeBron James is doing. God bless him for, for putting people through college, like him or not. He's putting kids through college. Yeah, it's amazing how much he's done. It really is insane. And and he's really done it fairly quietly, even though obviously a lot of media attention has followed him just because of the fact that he was some type of phenom from the beginning. Ryan, great call. I appreciate it. Making sense of this. So maybe he's right. If it works and and it's a a school district or a school that's not getting the resources that they need and and, and it's troubled at-risk teams that you might, you know, see a news blurb of or maybe be in an event for Lighthouse Youth Services, which is a great organization or something like that, maybe that's not a bad idea. Keegan, it's your turn with Sterling on the big one. Should kids be incentivized by cash money to show up and and go to school and and not have discipline problems? Uh, you know, I can see the I, I can see the the, the nations of all this, and, and and it being probably at its heart a, a good idea. Uh, you know, obviously we want to incentivize kids to learn and to teach themselves, and 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 to take care of themselves once they become adults. The 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 primary issue that that I would see down the road, uh, potentially, anyways, who knows? This may work, but uh, I, I would I would see someone potentially not uh, outside of a classroom setting or. Video. Here we are. Nice day to be out and about. Tri-state. Warm temperatures. It's ridiculous. My grandmother would say it's pneumonia weather. She's not around. But I can hear her in my head saying that. Put a coat on. Put a hat on. 
Bobby Nightingale Jr. going to join us in about an hour and a half, 2.35. We'll talk to him. He covers the Reds for the Inquirer. Not a lot of action with that, but we'll get an update on the MLB negotiations, Player Association. The player's been locked out. Backstory on that, if you don't know, we'll catch up in a bit. Uh, right now, uh, all eyes, basically, of the world, uh, with the help of technology, have allowed us to basically see in real time, or close to real time, uh, an assault upon Ukraine by Russia, or at least the military, uh, ordered by the president, uh, Vladimir Putin. Someone who knows uh, issues from that part of the world was around for the peace accords in Dayton, former head of political science, Wright State University, Professor Emeritus Dr. Donna Schleich with Sterling now on the big one. Thank you for making time again as we look at this Russia situation with Ukraine. Uh, first of all, I mean, I, I guess what we're really seeing, if anyone didn't know for sure before, is that aside from the sanctions, which are pretty severe economically for the people of Russia and in some fashion probably will affect oligarchs. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it'll take food out of their mouths, but certainly boats out of the water or whatever. If you have nukes, you can pretty much run amok and do what you want because the fear of Armageddon uh, keeps everybody else at bay while you take over a country, I guess. Am I exaggerating or misinterpreting or reading the desperation and the isolation, even with help of arms, that Ukraine is getting from not just the, the West here in the U.S., but the rest of the world? Sterling, hello. Um, I think Hi. you are accurately describing Vladimir Putin's attitude about threatening nuclear weapons, but that is not a fair description of previous Russian and Soviet strategies, uh, where they, they did not invade and occupy other countries with the threat of nuclear weapons. So I think you bring up an interesting point. Has Putin gotten way too far out in front of his own military establishment, which has said over and over again for decades, nobody wins a nuclear war? Uh, what about the idea of technical nukes? And uh, aside from the nuclear power plant that thankfully apparently did not have damage that was initially feared um, with the reactors uh, that are there, one of which I guess is uh, down for maintenance, but there are five others. Uh, between uh, what happened years ago with, with the plant that has been shut down and everything has sort of been isolated and so on, there's still waste of nuclear uh, materials. And we still don't know, even though there was a great effort to sort of chase down a lot of the, this nuclear stuff, uh, it's still out there, too, that one actor, hopefully not bad, might in fact have their hands on at least, yes? Uh, of course, you were talking about Chernobyl Correct. and what happened in, in, in 86. Right. And also about a lot of the tactical nukes uh, that the Soviets had deployed and then when Soviet Union collapsed, many remain somewhat unaccounted for. Um, in terms, two things, you know, that, that nuclear threshold that Putin keeps crossing and also the visible recorded on television, on social media, not just war, but war crimes that are being committed right now. Uh, our Secretary of State could only say that we are documenting them all, uh, but records will be keeping, uh, will be keeping. Uh, the Balkans, of course, brought about international war crimes tribunals of a top elected official, Slobodan Milosevic, and a top general in the Bosnian, uh, the Serbian Bosnian forces, uh, who, who would die before he could be convicted. But there was accountability. Uh, and this is before everything was filmed as well. So Sterling, it, um, it, you know, it's just day 11. And the, the, the complexity of the questions 
already. My questions really are what's not being filmed and what we're not seeing and, and what no one wants to talk about right now is how the resupply from NATO to Ukraine is happening. And yes, and we're all glad that it is. This is going to be something we won't hear about till after the war, I think, Sterling. Uh, you know, some of the great World War II movies like The Great Escape. Sure. Uh, there's going to be, there, there's a story there about what East European members of NATO are doing to move weapons close to and actually transferring them into Ukraine to allow the Ukrainians to do what we've always said in every insurgency has to happen. People have to want to fight for their own country. And we've really so seen the war crimes. Well, it certainly seems that way. Now, women and children, uh, refugees, another million and a half flooding and so you know, the Russians apparently carelessly you know shelling the, the flood of refugees purely civilians yep. uh, just trying trying to flee it, um, it, it it's just day 11 in 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 this war and every single question about World War two and war crimes and insurgencies is on the table and, and of course the big one is energy you know our everybody who has to tank up their gas, Hank is, is worried about where this is going to take us. It's going to be so much worse for the Europeans who have to import so much energy. But I had a question for you, Sterling. Uh-oh. I thought you Everyone's were the expert. Wait a minute. The, Wait a minute. Uh, well, this is my question, but okay. I just want to pose it. Everyone is calling upon the administration to, you know, block Russian oil and, and, and other energy exports. Weren't you impressed when MasterCard and Visa and Apple and Google, you know, go down the list, all of these corporations just suddenly said they were out. Yeah, They're well, done with Russia. We haven't really so seen a lot of that before. We have to be told uh, not to buy Russian oil. Well, uh, could they not do that on their own without, you know, some government decree that would protect them from other companies that, that you know, that might buy it and sell it for more money? In, in short just, order, just a thought. I, I would think so. Dr. Donna Schleich, by the way, professor emeritus, former head of political science, Wright State University, was sterling on the big one. But that leads to a couple of questions here for you, because I, I don't have the answers necessarily. Uh, first of all. Uh, you can't effectively, in the middle of winter, turn off the spigot of, of supply of oil, which is a very weird thing in the midst of, of the threat of war beyond Ukraine, perhaps. That's the fear with NATO countries and so on. But there is no other source of heating oil in many cases or in other fuels other than Russia for a great portion of Europe, Germany certainly, and, and other countries there. Because you can't just automatically flip it from getting it from there, and, and there's no pipeline from here to there. So... I mean, in the middle of winter, if you're going to try to, to move forward without that being shut down and that revenue stream, seems to me this is the time to do it if you're a bad actor, in this case being uh, Putin's Russia, yes? Uh, it, 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 it's the time to exercise that leverage, and then that's the question of how much pain gets inflicted where and how long. Yeah. We are now the world, one of the world's biggest energy producers, right? We have the capacity to step up, but it's the Middle East oil producers who have the biggest capacity to step up and my complaint right now is that the saudis and the emirates in particular in conjunction with what they call opec plus which includes russia they haven't signaled anything they've just signaled they're going to keep their production steady and rake in the profits so what an interesting proposal has been how about temporarily dropping our sanctions on Venezuela and Iran and letting them help make up for the shortfall. Uh, we've also called upon 
believe it or not, the Korea, South Koreans and, and the Japanese and others to redirect some of their liquefied nat- natural gas supplies over to Europe as well to try to address the shortfall that you correctly predict is going to hit and it's going to hurt. Germany gets about 40% of their energy from Russia today. It's going to pinch. And all of this redirection, you know, I would like to see some American energy companies saying, we are stepping up, we're going to max out our production during this crisis. Why are they not doing that now? Is it a a profit thing, which I can kind of respect, though I hate being the one who's helping to fatten the pocket? Or is it, you know, issues of capacity or uh, environmental concerns? Or, Or exactly why isn't that spigot been opened wide? What a great question. Uh, A few days ago, we heard a lot of talk about, well, you know, reopen the XL pipeline. Well, in four or five years, that might make a difference. And I heard several energy officials interviewed about why they weren't, you know, doing more. And they said, well, there's just so much uncertainty right now. Well, hello, there's a war going on. And in, in the business of business, there's always uncertainty. How about a patriotic demonstration? That would be nice. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Can, can that be ordered, you know, or would that be an overreach by this administration? I mean, could that be something well, that's ordered? Because in, in time, look at the pandemic and the executive order that went down, however it was fought in court or otherwise, when it came down to our everyday lives and, and masking or businesses shut down and so on. Here we have a crisis of war. You can do it for manufacturing weapons and ammunition. You can do it for masks. You can do it for research technology. Why can't you do the same for oil? Or are they too powerful to stop that? Even though a couple bucks for us may not be a big deal, but if you're in the lower spectrum of uh, money in your pocket, it, it sure as hell makes a big difference if you're spending three fifty or $4 a gallon compared to 2 or $3. Oh, some Americans will, in very short order, have to choose between groceries and, and gas. To get, and and get groceries to are also way up in the midst of all this, too. Really, when you think about it, isn't this also strategically, when you look at supply lines, our dependence on China and all those ships still off the coast of California and all the issues of logistics and, and supply chain stuff, an opportunity to really put us in a bad situation because we are so dependent on other places for the stuff that keeps us going as an economy and, and just as a society in general, including food on our plate. We are dependent. Now, of course, we are one of the world's biggest food producers, too, in terms of the grain shortages that we're all hearing about out of Ukraine and Russia right now. What you talk about sounds like a War Powers Act. And I would be surprised if the president were at the point right now to want to invoke that. But the president can lead public opinion. And what if Americans and even stockholders in those companies, BP, Exxon and Shell are, are getting out of out of Russia. They're just they're not going to do any more business. So those are two. Exxon is a big American company. Royal Dutch Shell is, of course, a Dutch company. And Little Netherlands has been at the very front of trying to get weapons to the Ukrainians. Little Little Netherlands, Little Holland uh, has been setting an example for them. I do not expect the president to make that gesture. I would like to see more journalists like yourself asking other Americans, where are the American oil companies here? Just planning their profits or are they going to perhaps take, you know, take some small cuts and step up production, put more people on, you know, on the job, hire people on overtime, crank up the production as if we're in a war. We are. We are. We're in a proxy war at this point. We already know when uh, cyber technology and everything else, and effectively it's us uh, against Russia and China's sort of, 
uh, I don't know, on the sideline doing whatever they're doing. Dr. Donna Schlake uh, is Professor Mayer's former head of political science at Wright State with Sterling on the big one. To circle back a little bit, and we're short on time, but you mentioned something interesting about rules of war and war crimes. And we talk about this idea that if there's a no-fly zone, which we were uh, slow to put up and slow to really come to the rescue of Bosnia Herzegovina, whether it's because uh, and there's a lot of questions as to why this is different than that, which is different than Syria, which is different than other refugee situations, war torn economic uh, or, uh, you know, uh, blight of some other type that is going on uh, around planet Earth at one time or another uh, in the, certainly the history uh, in this part of the world. Um, w- if we are by proxy facilitating the armament of Ukraine, but not with boots on the ground directly maybe special forces, whatever it is, we're effectively facilitating their defense anyway. Why is that not the same engagement consideration as it would be if we were shooting Russian uh, planes out of the sky or had our military on the ground there? Well, that is a tough question. I think we are haunted by memories of World War One and World War Two, where we sort of slowly ramped up and one country mobilized and another mobilized And then you have the guns of August in 1914, and everyone is at war with everyone else. I think that slows our our, our thinking and our actions. Vladimir Putin has already said you're, you're conducting the functional equivalent of being at war with us. Putin has already thrown that out there. But they started it, though. Does that matter, though? I I sound like a little kid, right? Well, they started it, but they did. (laughs) One more thing, of course, slows us, and it is the nuclear threshold. So we've got an old historical lesson, be careful what you trigger, unanticipated consequences, but it's that nuclear threshold. And the, the speed and the early stage at which Vladimir Putin has thrown that one on the table already, it should, it should give us pause. You know, the, the urgency that people feel to help Ukraine, to stop these violations, you know, of the laws of war laws of war and peace is what they're technically called but you know what we've we've hit that crunch point haven't we sterling you've got rules of war who's going to do the enforcement a lot of americans and there's a strong isolationist sentiment in our country always it's always present in peace and in war times that you 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 know that that isolationist sentiment is you know make us completely self-sufficient America first in all things. But here in 2022, we are deeply already irreversibly integrated into a world economy of weapons and technology and energy. There's no going back from that integration into the world economy. It's, it's a question of how we manage it. We're managing it right now by cooperating with all of our friends and allies to try to, in effect, punish the rule breaker to try to stop the Russians. But whether it's domestic violence or international war, it's always that crunch point of enforcement. Many Americans do not want Americans to be the world's policemen. Okay, then, how do the rules get enforced? Yeah, we, we are we are the biggest. It's the, the you know you you want to have the ability to open markets and handle business globally. Then there's this other end where you have to at least maintain some safety, or it comes back to bite you, I suppose. Doctor Donna Schlake, uh, short on time here in about two minutes, and it may be impossible to ask and answer this. Uh, as we look here and sit here now in 2022. The idea of the Americans, the TV show, and, and you look at uh, the time that has been spent since the wall fell. And we look at Putin and what he said going back to his times at the KGB and said effectively of all the things that has ha- have happened in the 20th century, the worst period 
is the fall of that wall and the, you know, the, the, the disbanding of or whatever of the former Soviet Union. Knowing that, saying that, and looking at that, what is the, the thought that he's not going to just stop at Ukraine and move ahead anyway? We're already in this engagement, even though it hasn't moved in NATO countries. Therein lies that awful question. You know, are we completely guilty of appeasement? Uh, going back multiple presidents, oh yeah, uh, there, he he has not been punished. We have tolerated it. We've hit the moment of the intolerable. We have, and at some point, the, the arms that are flowing from NATO into Ukraine are going. You know, they're going to be a target of the Russians. That confrontation is perhaps unavoidable. I suspect that what we are hoping for is that wiser heads may prevail in Russia. Do they really want to face that ultimate confrontation of a nuclear exchange? This is the absolute nightmare of every European member of NATO and every other country in NATO, that they will have to suffer most of the fallout. You and I have those recollections of childhood of going back into the hallways for nuclear war drills. We have to mentally begin to prepare for that because Putin will threaten it again. It's, you know, it's, uh, I can't imagine at this point being a little kid because uh, I was a little child. I was talking earlier about uh, kids in elementary school that I went to are, are getting paid to go to school now, uh, which they never paid me really. Uh, but in that same school before they rebuilt it, they did have us go down into the basement in the fallout shelter after watching those movies. And they had those warnings and not just for tornadoes, but the other. Uh, so it, it is shattering emotionally to that and i i find myself not even oh we don't have to really worry about it we can't really do anything about that element of it you just sort of carry on and i don't know if i want to be here after the nuclear fallout anyway i mean seriously what the hell is going to be left it's just very just just disturbing uh we're out of time but i look forward to having you on again it's always good to get your perspective and insight with your experience uh and doing what you uh, have done over the years from the peace accords and a uh, former political science boss at Wright State University professor emeritus Dr. Uh, Donna Schlake thank you for making time as always i i, I really appreciate it and uh, enjoy the conversation and perspective thank you sterling take care of yourself all right uh we'll we'll come back in a minute take care of some business 130 report we'll get back to paying kids to go to school a bunch of other ground to cover before we also talk baseball the lockout and what that means for the reds in spring training and well, hopefully hearing the sounds of red baseball, uh, not just here on the big one, but a great American ballpark with Sterling on 700 WLW. Are you ready? Yeah, let her rip. Okay, here we go. Uh, bananas. Nope. Peanut butter. Nope. Uh, sweet and sour chicken. It was fudge. Oh, fudge. The Guess What I Ate podcast. New episodes each week. There are a lot of shows to listen to these days. Make sure it's a show worth your time. I suggest The Scott Sloan Show. I bust my butt to give you the best show I can every day. Check out Sloney tomorrow morning at 9 on 700 WLW. And be sure to catch his podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Win a trip to our 2022 iHeartRadio Music Awards. Tuesday, March 22nd. The biggest artists and songs you listen to over the past year on iHeartRadio will be celebrated on Fox. Live from L.A. And you can be there. iHeartRadio. LL Cool J will host and perform. Jennifer Lopez will receive the iHeartRadio Icon Award. And the biggest stars in pop, hip-hop, country, alternative, rock, R&B, Latin music, and more will all be celebrated. Enter now on this station's website for your chance at a trip to be there.
Witness once-in-a-lifetime performances, history-making moments, and so much more at our 2022 iHeartRadio Music Awards. Is something wrong with the toilet? Uh-oh. When your home has an uh-oh, just call Apollo. Heating, cooling, plumbing, electrical, and drains. One company, one call. That's Apollo. ApolloHome.com. Hey, it's Mike McC- Hey, hi, how you doing? Sterling hanging out, 700 WLW. Fine Sunday afternoon. Bob Fest going on. Nice weather. It's warm. Hopefully we'll see more no, no more snow. We'll see. But, you know, normally you go, okay, well, opening day uh, is uh, maybe off in, in the distance. And you go, well, maybe I've seen snow on opening day. It could happen, but we're not going to have a standard opening day. Who knows when that's going to actually come and what that actually will mean. And hell, I, I, I'm not even concern, uh, convinced we're going to have a season. Uh, we will talk to Bobby Nightingale Jr. about that in just about an hour. He uh, follows the Reds for the Inquirer, Cincinnati.com. Uh, minor leaguers going to work. And uh, obviously, huge crowd. I think it was the biggest one for opening day for UC uh, baseball, Bearcats. Wright State uh, had uh, some stuff going on, too. Obviously, a whole lot of college ball. We know about all the minor league action around. So at least they, uh, unless they're in a major league contract, are, are handling their business. So there is that. So we'll cover some ground with him a bit later on that. Uh, I, I want to talk about something a little bit different. And this is... I guess this is diff- difficult. I don't have any kids. I have no little Sterling or Sterling yet. And I mentioned the school thing of paying kids to go to school. You can certainly sound off, and I'll reset that a bit later because I didn't have much time to get into it. And I've had great response, not just with calls, but also some emails and, and some tweet stuff at Sterling Radio. The phone number, by the way, I'll open it up, and then I'll set up something else, which is, I guess it's divisive. I, I It just seems weird to me, but if you have kids, then you can relate to this. So 513-749-7000, 800-THE-BIG-ONE, pound 700 AT&T. Uh, it doesn't matter your device, you can get in that way. Uh, it, here's the thing. So a friend of mine has a fifth grader. Uh, he's six years old, just at, or not six, I'm sorry, 11 years old. And had a birthday not long ago. And the mom had given him an iPhone a while back. And it like, because he's a kid, and I'll be honest, I mean, I'm a grown man, and, and I have broken, I, I've even dropped a cell phone and, and uh, driven over it, and then I went, ooh, it would have been nice if I had backed that thing up, uh, and, and not real good at that. It's important to do. So he's gone through a couple of phones. Um, he has a nicer, newer one. The, the, my buddy and uh, his wife were just debating on getting him another one, and apparently there have been some problems in classroom with, you know, I guess, not paying attention or not doing what you know. It's a distraction. Let's just call it what it is. If you've got kids and you're trying to eat and hang out, uh, even for people who are working and on the job, oftentimes or even driving, there seems to be an inability of grown adult people to be able to focus on the task at hand, like being behind the wheel of a vehicle that's a couple times. Uh, in weight going uh, freeway speeds on 71 or 75 where uh, an oops an uh uh-oh a brief moment of looking away could end up becoming you know stuff on on the road and a highlight in the news and not the kind that you want which then leads me to the, the question of questions my buddy doesn't want the kid to have a phone at all his wife has has bought multiple phones for them and then they've entered me into the conversation. I didn't want any part of it. And they did it subtly. It's like, so, you know, because I need a new phone. And I, I got a little mini 
phone, like a, an Android phone, and it's hard to find a tiny phone. I don't want the phone the size of a tablet because I like to be able to put it in my pocket. I have a tablet uh, and I have a laptop, and I don't like carrying around something that looks like Flava Flav's clock. Uh, I may as well put it on a necklace and roam around the streets of Cincinnati and Dayton like that. I'm not for it, okay? And and I'm having a hard time finding a little phone that I like. This kid's been through more phones in the last two years, I think, than I have in the last 15. That being said, he asked me, he's like, so should I get the kid another phone? I I don't want him to have another phone. She went ahead and got it. I go, I don't necessarily want to get involved in it. And I'm even going so far as to think of that I might just get, an old man phone, like a flip phone or something like that, not even the smartphone stuff, just because it'd be easier for me to get through life and navigate that way, uh, which I know is probably erudite and, and not practical, which then leads me to a story because I started searching about this online because I was curious how big of a thing it is without texting everybody in my phone book about how they handle it with their kids, which leads me to what I'm asking you. If you have a fifth grader or a fourth grader, or, you know, when do you give them a cell phone? When do you give them a smartphone? And what do you tell them about when it's appropriate to use it and when it's not? In a story that I came across that I, I found interesting, and, and I've actually sat down and broken bread with Pink when she was much younger when I worked at KISS 107 here years ago. And uh, when she had come through early on in her career. And there's a story uh, about her not allowing her 10-year-old daughter to have a phone. Because she doesn't think it's necessary, that it's a distraction, and all the elements of stuff with it, and of course, it's where all the other kids have it, and she says that she doesn't care, and I totally get it, and this is a quote from her, she goes, for kids, I'm not there yet, I have a 10-year-old who does not have a phone, although she pointed out to me yesterday, quote, you know most of the kids in my class, fifth grade, like my buddy's kid, but 11, have a phone. That uh, She said it doesn't move the needle for her, right? She says we, we can't be dinosaurs ourselves as parents, but we have to balance and embrace it, when, you know, when it's right. So I'm going to ask you, because, you know, I, I was a, a latchkey kid. I, I was a free-range kid before anybody ever used that term. And I had adventures and probably got into some situations that were kind of mm, shady and inappropriate at times, but I survived it. Today, you got kids that can't hardly leave the yard, rarely in some cases want to leave the house, getting them to go ride a bike and other stuff, from what I understand, can be a challenge, too. Yet everybody wants that technology in their hand, and the idea is that apparently they can't learn and can't function in school without it. Yet I have friends that are educators and tell me that they're constantly battling kids and dealing with their phones for one reason or another in the school situation. And the argument that my buddy's wife says, well, what happens if there's a school shooting? I want him to be able to call for help. I get that. But it's not very regularly occurring, and it seems a little bit of a stretch. So I want to know, do you give your kid in fifth grade a phone? Do you give them just a a regular, like, flip phone? Do you give them a phone that has all the stuff that your phone or my phone for business and life and work has that's a smartphone? Where do you draw the line, and how do you deal with that? Because my response, when they ent- and they entered me into the conversation, I didn't want anything to do with it. Because I don't need to get into their spat. And clearly, she's controlling everything anyway because she's bought multiple phones. They gave the kid hand-me-down phones early on, and then that's not good enough because he already has the, the fear of missing out. The conversation that I heard a while back was, 
well, they've got a newer phone and it doesn't do this. And, and, and I understand that kid has turned into what we were when we were little, which is trying to figure out how to work the VCR, to work the DVD for our parents and so on. It's still an issue with the blinking 12 o'clock on some of our parents' stuff because they're aged and a little slower. Now, we're a little slower and the 10 or 11-year-old may be advanced. 513-749-7000, the big one, pound 700, AT&T, your chance to get interactive. Which then also sort of ties into earlier's conversation that I'm just going to throw out there now and feather into this. I think we can do multiple things, and it kind of ties in. One of the schools that I went to as a kid was E.J. Brown Elementary School in Dayton, Ohio, because I grew up there. And uh, I had people send me stories, and and they're paying kids at that school and a few others in that school district to go to school. Donations from private nonprofit entity that's coughed up some cash. If they go two weeks without uh, missing a day and they don't get in trouble, they get like a $25 gift card. Do it for another couple of weeks, they'll get another $25 gift card. And then apparently in the midst of not getting in trouble and showing up, their parents will also get some cash, right, a gift card of some sort. My guess is that many of those kids, because they're more at risk if they need that money to get them motivated to go to school, depending, are probably not the kids that have cell phones that are having the conversation like my friends who are maybe living a little bit uh, better than those who are so desperate that where that 50 bucks might make a difference on whether or not the kid's able to make it to school or something. I don't know for sure. That's why I'm asking you. How young is too young to give your kids a phone? How do you navigate that? And what about paying kids to go to school? Let's get at least one here in before the break. I'm already late. Why the hell not? Kelly, it's your turn with Sterling on the big one. I appreciate you holding. What do you think about this stuff? Um, I think fifth grade is way too early for phones. Um, I'm a high school teacher. I see what it does to our high school students. Um, They spend 24-7 on their phones. My kids personally that I had you know, that are my biological children did not get a phone till they were 16 because I could see what was going on at school. Tell me what's going and on because you're in the school and I don't know. If I'm in school, then I, I don't know what the hell I'd be doing there. Yeah. <laughs> well, students now spend a lot of their time just trying out, trying to figure out how to copy their work and um, their cell phones, a tool that helps them do that instead of actually study. A lot of students are wanting the shortest shortcut, and technology is, has, you know, brought that possibility. I mean, we all did that growing up, too, but now they can take a picture of their homework. They share it with a friend. That kid doesn't learn his math because he's just transferring it. Everything they're doing is transferring. They're not remembering and studying and learning study skills. They're transferring. And so it's not helping them in the long run. It's just the quick fix. And uh, socialization skills, I have never seen so many students say to me, um, no, I can't do that. I can't go to that teacher's classroom. Can somebody come with me? Because I can't can't go in there and ask them a question because Mm -hmm. they're too backward. They don't want anybody to pay any attention to them. They walk through the hallways with their faces in their phones so it's a social anxiety thing i i've had that Uh, and i man maybe i really been more of a shut-in if i'd actually had a cell phone as a kid that that's disturbing is is how big how big of a problem is that it's bad because i had a student tell me the other day that she said you'll never guess what my mom made me do and i said what and she said 
she made me go into Subway and order my own sandwich. Oh my God! So, if it's you know, it's it's bad. They their socialization and anxiety skills are it's just bad. And did the, the, the and pandemic worse. did the pandemic make it worse, Kelly? Um, probably because they are in they were in their house, you know, for a while. Now I know our Indiana schools were open, a lot of them. We've been open for two years. Right. Um, which which was nice. But still it's like and then as a teacher, if you go to approach them to get their phone, they will grab it back from you. I mean, they they will they it, it's anxiety big time they're like no you can't take my phone you can't take my phone so they're fear when, they're going to yes, miss something out so what is, so are they on the phone the whole time in the classroom see i mean i i just if you go it's, to some it's, concerts it's a continual it's a continual battle for a teacher that's all you do is fight with kids about putting their cell phones away uh. and at our school they're not supposed to have their cell phones out but they do and it's because they just it's like I tell them, I'm like, you're addicted to your cell phone. Yeah, that's a problem. And you tell them to put it away, and it's in their uh, hoodie pouch, you know, or they sneak it under their hoodie, or they hide it. It's constant. It's a constant battle. That's crazy, Kelly. The junior high is out here have went to not letting them have their cell phones out at all again. Um, Like, they're not allowed to have them at school per se, because they found that lunchtime, the students were not interacting. And um, all they did was sit on their phones. So fifth grade, definitely no. And now they're seeing at our junior high levels, they're not allowing them at all. We're different, I guess, now. We're definitely different. That's crazy. Kelly, I appreciate the call and the perspective, doing what you do as an educator. So, yeah, I'm not the only one, at least. But without kids, I, I don't always know. Because I, mean, I, I look back at, at how I'm lived as a kid, and then I look at some of my friends and relatives' kids, and 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 so on. And it's a little bit different. Joshua, what about kids and phones? Fifth grade too early for a smartphone? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, so uh, me and my wife are a little conflicted uh, about it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we live in a school district that does not uh, bus our students. So my daughter is in the third grade when she did get her first cell phone, but it's only for us to be able to contact her as she's walking from school to the house. And we have it highly regulated to where she can't do hardly anything in school. The only thing that she'd be able to do would be call me or my wife. Right. Uh, Other than that, it's more for us to be able to keep track of her uh, through Google Maps. We're able to see where she's at, making sure that she's not walking to friends' houses and making it home on time. Sure. Uh, there, there's there's times where I'm pulling in the driveway as she's walking into the driveway. So there, it's, it's it's more for us to keep track of her on the walk back and forth to school. I, I think we, I can understand work. that. Sure. My mom, if she could have, I think would have implanted a chip in me so she could just like <laughs> zap me to, if I started acting cr- like a, you know like a, a collar for the dog in the yard or something. But uh, you know that th- she probably would have gone two four one kids would have been called or something like that. She'd be locked up. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, other than that, me and my wife weren't going to get her one until she was in junior high school just because we, we know how addicted we are to our cell phones. Yeah. Alone. We don't want to introduce that to her. You know what's... But other than that, that's... Go ahead. I'm go sorry. Ahead. No, I was just going to say what's strange is I, I think over the last year or two, I've gotten to the point just because of the way work has been and this life has been with everything with the, you know, the, the COVID crap is that 
I now will, I've left the house and not had it. And I kind of appreciate right. it, except when I'm going, oh, I can't remember what I was supposed to pick up. Because even with the list, I screw that up, which I hear about regularly. So that's, that's a whole nother story. One more question. I'm going to let you bounce, and then i got to take a break. But I'm curious about this, too. Like my old elementary school is paying kids to go to school. It's not a ton of money. But they have a problem with attendance and at-risk kids now just because of, I guess, where the neighborhood is. It's changed, although maybe I was an at-risk kid and didn't realize it. But uh, nobody was paying me to go to school. If that can benefit and help kids show up and, and be prepared and not a, a, you know, a problem when it comes to behavior aside from the phone, do you think it's reasonable to pay kids to go to school? Just a small well, amount, 25 really, 50 bucks a couple of weeks? I really don't think so. I think that the kids should have the drive to want to be at school. Okay. versus getting paid to be at school. I mean, I, I understand that it's their job to be there, but I, I think if, it, if they're there for the money, then they're there for the money. If they're there for the education, it's more uh, th- that they want the education. Yeah, I, I think that you said it perfectly. Josh, I appreciate you uh, being a part of the show and listening, man. Thank you. Yep. Take care okay. of yourself. Larry will be first. We'll come back. Quick break. What about it? Paying kids to go to school, and how soon is too soon to give your kid a smartphone? What about 11 years old, 10 years old, fourth grade, third grade? When is the time? At this point, I'd love to be able to turn off the technology more regularly than I do, but I might miss money, and it's about business and life. Or might get, uh, you know, uh, yelled at, too. 749-7800, the big one. Pound 700 AT&T. You can also find me on uh, Twitter, at Sterling Radio. This is the Nation Station, 700 WLW. If Manny Ricardo had listened to those who called him a dreamer, he wouldn't have knocked on every agency's door. If he paid attention to those who said he was wasting his time, he wouldn't have spent countless hours perfecting his look. But because he never gave up, he got his big modeling break as the before picture in erectile dysfunction ads. That's the fighting spirit. The same fighting spirit Mike McConnell brings to your morning. The latest news, traffic, weather, and more tomorrow morning at 5 on 700 WLW. The Ridiculous Crime Podcast proves that true crime is... Let me raise baseball me. <laughs> I'm laughing because I kind of want to cry about it. I don't know why. I mean, it's big business. It's not my business necessarily. Man, I'd be loving to be going to the ballpark in about a month's time, give or take, right? We'll see what happens. We'll talk to Bobby Nightingale Jr. about it in about 30 minutes. He covers the Reds uh, for the Inquirer. Uh, We'll see what uh, is going on in the desert, how negotiations are, and so much other stuff to go along with it. Uh, A lot of ground to cover between then and now. Uh, glad you're here. 513-749-7800, the big one, pound 700 AT&T, your chance to get interactive. Uh, I, I saw something kind of kind of wild, and it got me thinking. I, I think this is probably a topic and give you a chance to get interactive. I, I mentioned this before the news. We had some conversation uh, about the, the age of kids and cell phones and how young or not uh, it, it, to give them that smartphone or whatever. You can certainly get interactive on that. Uh, also, I uh, already talked about uh, paying kids to go to school at the elementary school level, middle school level, if they're at risk kids. Uh, one of my old uh, elementary schools is actually uh, paying a small amount uh, from pri- private funds, not from tax dollars, uh, to, to pay kids. So you can certainly sound off on that. And then something else that's new, and I'm a huge Leonard Skinner fan, have been since I was just a little kid. And th- this is kind of why Ronnie Van Zant used to front that band. His brothers have uh, been doing it since uh, basically they got back together and uh, started doing it again following the plane crash years and years ago now. Uh, but right now, the Van Zant's childhood house is a place that you could go visit on Airbnb, um, which 
I, I don't know if you know much about his childhood or where he comes from, but it got me because usually when you think of stars, music makers, actors, notable people, whatever, you think, okay, well, they must have some crazy cool spot in a cool place. It's a palatial estate, whatever it is. Maybe this is a spot where you'd like to go vacation. And in fact, people do that now regularly, right? And I'm wondering, okay, well, childhood homes, it's a different story. Uh, you know, because, I mean, do I want to go someplace that maybe they came up deprived or, or something along those lines? This house is in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, and it actually pays tribute to Van Zant and Skinnerd. Got all kinds of Skinnerd Southern Rock stuff, et cetera. It's, it, this is from the listing. It's wild. Inside the main house, you'll find some cool memorabilia, vintage 38 Brunswick pool table, retro 70s feel. Reminds us, uh, it says, all the the way things were with the hint of nostalgia. And uh, it says people get a, a sense of uh, going back in time to Skinner's Prime, et cetera. And, uh, okay, I, I get that, I suppose. I don't know if I'd want to necessarily go back in time. I guess of all the people that aren't here that are celebrities or maybe their childhood homes, I, I don't even know if I'd want to do the childhood home thing. But what about, and you can certainly sound off, but what about celebrities' places? Like, I think Elvis's place in Memphis, which is uh, like stepping back in time, to the 70s, sort of, in a crazy world. And he's been gone since, like, 77. And, and it's kind of tough. In fact, uh, Elvis passed away. It wasn't that far off uh, from uh, Skinner's plane going down. But most people think about Elvis more than Skinner when it comes to that because it wasn't that far in difference in time. But I think I'd like to go to Elvis's old place. I think the, you know, that, that Frank Sinatra house in Palm Springs would be a good place if it was on Airbnb. I could, I could stand going to Palm Springs, kick back in the dry desert heat by the pool, having some cocktails and thinking about the Rat Pack. That would be all right. So if, in fact, there was some star, childhood home or otherwise, and you know how they're living right now, probably pretty good. I'm wondering where it is, if you could go vacation there, where would it be? Now, I don't mean vacationing with that star. I don't mean bringing him back from the dead or otherwise. But just in general, where you know where would you want to be if you could take a weekend or, or you know a week or whatever and, and do a vacation thing at some celebrity of old's place of residence or what have you where they grew up and so on five one three seven four nine seven thousand eight hundred the big one pound seven hundred AT and T I think that'd be pretty cool I mean I I can imagine like the guys from from Led Zeppelin and, and I think about the, you know the, the out in the wilderness and of the the UK and some of those spots where they go be pretty cool and you think okay well the Beatles probably live pretty well certainly right and uh, I wouldn't mind going to one of their places I, I don't know where else that sort of goes along with that five one three seven four nine seven thousand eight hundred the big one pound seven hundred on AT and T you can get interactive that way too at Sterling Radio uh, overall aside from the vacation thing uh, just looking at how everything else has sort of changed and. I would imagine anybody looking at a European trip, for that matter, uh, is maybe reevaluating a trip to Europe this summer, considering all the turmoil. And, and that sort of ties into this, too. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff there. But you look at the cost associated and uh, the danger of conflict. And, and if Russia goes further than Ukraine and everything, would that be a place that you'd be wanting to go for summer? Are you changing your plans and what you're thinking about doing when you think about getting out of town, closer to home here in the tri-state, maybe uh, down to Florida, or, or maybe some celebrity's childhood home, or maybe their current place, depending if they're renting it out. Because, I mean, you, you think about some major players in today's world, whether it's professional athletes, whether it's superstar actors or otherwise, 
you think that if they got some money, it might be a cool place for them to be and, and, and where you might want to spend some time, too. Which, I mean, you know, pick one. I, I think, you know, whether it's someplace maybe in Malibu, maybe someplace more out in big sky country in Wyoming or someplace like that, that you know, the land of like uh, Longmire, those those books. I think they made the TV show out, uh, which I think is coming back actually on Netflix. I'd like to go out there in the middle of nowhere and just kick back in a cabin some spot. I think that'd be pretty good. 513-749-7800, the big one, pound 700 AT&T. You can get interactive that way. Uh, Melissa Booker. Uh, Office Tutorials on, on Twitter said, Hey, Sterling, I just turned in my six-year-old phone, ended up getting a flip phone. She says she loves the size. It's been an adjustment and misses the 2005 model uh, and uh, the technology overload that sort of goes with that, which I think a lot of people sort of have maybe that, that thing, too, since we were talking about kids and phones. And, you know, that's kind of a strange. If my buddy's kid hadn't have broken the last one before his mom got him a new one, his phone was an upgrade for mine, too, but it's also one of those real big ones. I don't know that I need... One of the, you know, the real big old phone the size of my first apartment. But, you know, maybe so. Quick break, come back, give you a chance to speak your mind. 513-749-7000, the big one, pound 700 AT&T. And we'll talk on Reds and uh, Major League Baseball and whatever agreement uh, the, the owners or, or uh, they've locked out the, the players. Maybe you're working towards or if it's a, a pipe dream to think that there's going to be baseball anytime soon with Bobby Nightingale Jr. from the Inquirer about 2.35 after the news. First, let's get to Madisonville and Rick on the big one. Hey, Rick. Sterling, good afternoon. How are you on this 80-degree uh, day? I, I feel, I, I, you know what, this is pneumonia weather. My, I, I just keep hearing my grandma Betty in my ear going, you better put a coat on, you better put a coat on. And I'm like, nah, I'm, oh rolling, I'm driving it, it, with the sunroof open and having a great time. Sounds like my uh, grandma Carolla. I was just listening to you as I often do. I appreciate and it. And you're talking about historic comments uh, from Cincinnati. And one of my favorites, uh, Sam Clemens, uh, who uh, became Mark Twain, of course, sure. said that if, he, that if he ever died, he hoped it would happen in Cincinnati because it would happen six years later. <laughs> yep. That's a legendary and thing. And one of my. Uh, and one of my favorite comments from Mark Twain, uh, he said, stopping smoking was the easiest thing he had ever done. In fact, he had done it 100 times. That that makes about, yeah, just about everybody I know has tried to put the butts down and said pretty much the same thing. Rick, I appreciate the call and a little history there, too. Quick break, come back. More Sterling, 700 WLW. I'm in my apartment. I was all alone, feeling a little lonely. So I figured, hey, why not? So I got comfortable, leaned back in my office chair, then pow! I see old Mrs. Green on the fire escape. Listening to 700 WLW's live stream on the iHeartRadio app may be shocking for some people, but it's the perfect way to listen to the big one wherever you are. It's not like I'm the first guy to ever do this. Listen to 700 WLW anywhere, anytime on the iHeartRadio app. Frisha's has been serving. Spin-off from the, the TV show Maud, if you remember that, back in a kid. Yeah, Florida, played by Esther Rolls. Family in Chicago, and housing projects. Not everybody's around anymore. You see Jimmy Walker still around. He's uh, selling, uh, like, insurance or something. I see him like, regularly on TV. But uh, sad news in the last couple of days, and it's hard to imagine an, an aged uh, bookman, but uh, Johnny Brown, who played uh, 
the maintenance man and became more uh, of a fixture on the show, passed away, as daughter said, just uh, recently, uh, last couple of days, mentioned this. Uh, died at 84 years old, so I just thought I'd mention that, too. I had somebody uh, send me some stuff about the celebrity dead and the trifecta of death. Uh, certainly you can uh, tweet at me at Sterling Radio. I'll lay out here what it is, and, and I don't know how much time we want to spend on it, but you can give you a chance to if you want. Um, the deal is, for the trifecta celebrity death is this, because we're all going to go at some time. Uh, we all have an expiration date. We're not wishing death upon anyone. It's about expectation by way of lifestyle, uh, because they're living rough and hard. Uh, maybe because uh, they've got themselves an illness, some type of situation like that. Maybe they're in, the, you know, up in years, like uh, Bookman uh, who just passed away, um, or it, you know, something as far as a, like a wild card scenario where anything could possibly happen. And you can certainly pick to sort of uh, who you expect to be next. Most newsrooms, uh, be it uh, TV news or print news, whatever it is, websites now, of course, uh, will in fact. Um, have a, a Deadpool, if you will. People cough up a little money, and then if you pick whoever's next or, or more of them than anybody else, sometimes people make money. And I know it's sort of dark, but uh, I used to do it regularly, and then it started hitting close to home with people that I'd either interacted with professionally, with interviews or so forth, what have you. And I'm like, and they're also getting closer in age. I mean, you know, I, and that also was sort of unnerving. But I, I guess the, the fact that we're here to talk about it is good news because we're still here. So it's okay. Again, not wishing death, but just just a sort of a part of that. So that's good. Oh, oh, thank you. So Scott just messaged. What about Ernest Borgnine? Uh, I don't know for sure. I, I thought Ernest Borgnine was gone, but I'll, I'll have to investigate. While I do that, let's go to Forest Park and talk with Gary with Sterling on seven hundred WLW. Gary, what's happening? How are you doing, Sterling? I'm all right. Now I'm worried about the well-being of Ernest Borgnine. But go ahead. <laughs> well, I think I think he had passed away a few years ago. But oh, yeah. um, I think I think I remember hearing that. But I wanted to uh, comment on a place I would like to visit. Yes. Um, I would like to uh, have seen uh, well, now Tom Brady when he lived up in New England. He his home was uh, well. He it was on the market when he moved to um, uh, Tampa for $39 million. I, I would just like to see what a $39 million home looks like. That'd be all right, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know what it would he, cost to stay know, there, but I, if you could, you would, right? Oh, yeah, because I've seen it. Uh, you know, they had it on YouTube one time, you know, and I know it had a bowling alley in it, and I know it had a basketball court in it, and I think in the backyard he had, like, a... Uh, a little par three golf course where you could hit, uh, you know, like 150 yards into the uh, green, nice. which would be nice. Yeah. I think he had like, I think he had, had like three swimming pools outside. That should and be a enough. swimming pool inside and a uh, <laughs> nice, nice, nice uh, indoor pool too. So yeah, I, I'd like to uh, see that place. I, I, yeah. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's still for sale, but you know, you might be uh, interested in uh, maybe buying that after you retire. Oh, sure, yeah, I'm in that price range. I could get the pool house, yeah. maybe, maybe the pool house. Well, and that might well, even yeah. be a stretch, but you know, I, I do what I can. I, I appreciate you looking out. I'll, I'll come along if you want to go that way. That'd be fine. Uh, and yes, Ern that's that's fantastic. My buddy uh, just messaged about the celebrity dead in Ergus Borgnine. You're a little late. He passed away in t uh, 2012. It's like 10 years ago he's been gone. That might be why you weren't sure if he was here or not. So you can certainly add to it. 749-7800, the big one, pound 700 AT&T, and at Sterling Radio on Twitter. 
Uh, wait a minute here. The screen just went dark. Uh, oh, yeah, this is good, too. I should mention this. FC Cincinnati uh, last night, TQL, had some issues with power early on, but got the match in. Not quite as ugly, though they did have some chances to score uh, in, in the match they had against Austin. Though they lost, I think it was 5-0. 1-0 last night. Uh, so, I mean, it could have been much worse as D.C. United left Cincinnati with the win and a couple points. But uh, just the same, they got Orlando next. I think it's coming up the 12th, which is uh, next weekend. So we'll, hopefully some good news for them and an outcome more positive overall. Uh, Rick, it's your turn with Sterling on 700 WLW. How you been? Hello? Hey, Rick. How are you? Oh, okay. okay. You, you got me now? Oh, I got you, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I, I thought the other person put uh, other person put me a hole. Yeah, I was just saying uh, downtown. Well, like downtown Johnny Brown. So I, I, I was saying I hear about him uh, uh, passing. Oh, yeah. Johnny Brown. Sure. Yeah. Played Bookman uh, on, on yeah. Good Times for those who don't know. That's right. Right, and uh, him and Jimmy Walker, they, they were probably the two closest on that on that set. You know, uh, Jimmy Walker has an excellent testimonial or. Uh, interview on youtube and he explains how how they all got along on that show you know really enlightening you know oh sure i mean just it's always nice to sort of get an insight to something like that i mean i was really small when it was on but i mean i i never wanted to miss it. it it was always cool it was funny i didn't understand all the layers to what was going on but it was and then later mm-hmm. watching it it was good too so hate to see him go but that's a good life he got to this as a 84 years old I mean that that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's not too premature, right? I mean, every day after no. eighty, I think I, I don't know for sure, but I think if I wake up at eighty I, I, every day, I'd be like, "Oh, good, I'm still here." I, it's almost shocking. Yeah, well, I didn't quite uh, agree with the way Norman Lear affect, affected television, though, know, because I missed the old uh, slapstick comedy shows. Sure, you know, like, you know, Bewitched, and you know, I Dream of Genie, and right. you know, those kind of shows. Well, sure, you could just sit there and laugh. You know, and let me, let me see. Uh, uh, oh, uh, Jimmy Walker. You know, he he can He used to come by Dayton all the time. Now, this is like about ten or fifteen years ago, and mm-hmm. he would uh, sub in for the some of the disc jockeys and stuff on some of the shows, like on, on some of the talk shows up in Dayton. Oh, I didn't know that. I knew that he mm-hmm. he's still obviously occasionally. I think would do some stand up and so forth. I, I got a chance to see him. He just like popped up on stage at the comedy store once. I was in Los Angeles for work, and uh, yeah. he was not expected, but he just showed up and did like ten minutes and killed, yeah. and then walked out and left, which uh, was pretty yeah. awesome. But that's been some years ago now. So yeah, that's pretty cool, Rick. It's always good to talk to you, my man. Thank you. I appreciate you being a part of the show. Uh, coming up after your two thirty report, we'll get an update of what's going on from Sandy Collins all over the tri-state and what's going on in Russia and how it affects us with the Ukraine uh, and the, the assault on that nation. And really getting some support, but it's just an ugly scenario. And obviously, we know that there's sacrifice and, and, and stress associated with it of a different kind for us here economically. And then who knows what uh, in, the, in the days ahead. So there'll be an update on that as well. Uh, the podcast will be up after the show. Conversation uh, already had with Dr. Dave Shetler uh, from Ohio State, the Bud Doctor, about the invasive spider issue and so much other things. Uh, Stephen Hampton talking Bachfest earlier. Still Bachfest going on. That You know what? That's a good thing to do on a, on a day like this, ridiculously warm for this season, getting a taste of what it'll be uh, like later, hang around downtown, get some good grubs, see some goats roaming around, uh, and uh, you know, enjoy some Bach beer or something along those lines. Not a bad day in and around the tri-state, certainly, to sort of go along with that. Uh, will the Reds be playing baseball this season? 
When will they be playing baseball this season if they do? Uh, nobody really knows for sure. Major League owners have locked out the players, not able to go to work, a whole lot of other deals to be done and trying to figure out who's going to play where for whom when and if this thing gets done sooner than later and the players, uh, you know, back and forth trying to negotiate and so on. Bobby Nightingale Jr. from the Inquirer, he's the Reds beat reporter, he follows him there, Cincinnati.com. He will join us on the other side of the news to give us an update on everything associated with this and what we should know that we don't already know. And maybe he uh, has some inside dope that we don't. So we'll find out. That's coming up after the news. Uh, a lot of other stuff to get to as well. Be nice. Uh, looking forward to getting to TQL and spending some time there. And, and the team getting better. It's just going to take time. It's a, it's a bit of a haul, and it's a long season. So you never know. They may surprise some people. We'll see exactly how how much more attention they get if the Reds don't uh, handle their business with the other major league owners and, and get a deal done with the players' association sooner than later, or maybe a lot more conversation about football uh, of a different kind uh, than we're used to on a big scale in Cincinnati with FCC. We'll see. News time now. More Sterling on the other side. Talking Reds with Bobby Nightingale Jr. and the Enquirer. 700 WLW. News, traffic, and weather. News Radio 700 WLW. Cincinnati. Tracking destruction and the human cost of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. With the 2.30 report, I'm Jack Crumley. Breaking now, day 11 of Russia's war on Ukraine. Russian troops shelling cities and a second attempt to evacuate civilians from the port city of Mariupol failed because of continued violence. 1.5 million refugees and counting. The human cost is unbearable is unbearable. Filippo Grande, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees in Poland, watching as Ukrainians flood across the border to escape Russia's bombardment. Ukrainian authorities are saying that Russia has already broken two humanitarian ceasefires in that key city of Mariupol. The latest one just this morning, it was an opportunity to try to get civilians out. That is Vladimir Putin is basically threatening the very existence of the Ukrainian state, saying he could continue to target civilian infrastructure, uh, roads, power, water, internet, and U.S. officials are saying that these kinds of attacks are only going to increase. ABC's Matt Gutman in Lviv, Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying the U.S. is looking actively now at providing Ukraine with fighter jets from Poland, including Russian-made jets, which Ukrainian pilots are familiar with, which the U.S. would then replace for Poland with new aircraft. Dave Packer, ABC News. Now the latest traffic and weather together, seeing a backup in northern Kentucky. Northbound 75, you're on the brakes before you get to Fort Mitchell, and you stay slow, very backed up, coming down the cut in the hill on the approach to the Brent Spence Bridge. A little bit of slow traffic in Indiana. Westbound 74, just across the state line into Indiana. Uh, road work has you slow approaching there. Now the latest forecast from the Train Heating and Cooling Weather Center on News Radio 700 WLW. Isolated heavy rain this morning, scattered for the afternoon and evening. High 70s, severe storms are possible. Heavy rain overnight into Monday morning, low 52. Rain lightens up Monday afternoon with a high of 62, 40s for Tuesday. From your severe weather station, I'm 9 First Warning Forecaster, Raven Richard, News Radio 700 WLW. Radar showing some fairly widespread rain in Butler County. Got a bit of an isolated storm falling uh, right around Middletown right now. Also parts of southeast Indiana 
just east of Batesville seeing a fairly strong isolated storm as well. 68 degrees. Investigating a deadly morning shooting in Northside. That happened before dawn along Georgia Avenue. No names released there. Meantime, Green Township police are also investigating a Sunday morning homicide. 27-year-old Richard Kelsey was found with multiple gunshot wounds on Sydney Road. Then, about an hour later, Delhi police say they were called to an overdose on Hillside Avenue. Investigators believe the incidents are related. 23-year-old Mark Henderson is now charged with murder. The damage assessment is underway following deadly tornadoes in Iowa. Yesterday, the National Weather Service in Des Moines is sending damage survey teams to a pair of Iowa cities to get more accurate gauging of the strength of the tornadoes that killed seven. We have a number of teams going out, one going from Winterset to Norwalk and another one that will be in Sheraton, Iowa, uh, this morning into the afternoon hours. National Weather Service meteorologist Roger Vahalik says at least one of the twisters was an EF3. Six of the victims died when a tornado touched down in the county's seat of Winterset, that is southwest of Des Moines. The seventh victim died in a twister that hit Cheriton, about 50 miles south of Des Moines. I'm Jack Crumley. Our next update at 3 o'clock. Breaking news anytime. News Radio 700 WLW. It would be baseball. Right now, I would have said uh, I'm on the road and I'd be listening to pregame show waiting for first pitch of the Reds in spring training in the desert. Bobby Nightingale Jr. would likely be... What would you be doing, Bobby Nightingale Jr., by the way, from the Inquirer with Sterling on the big one? If things were normal... And we, this was a regular spring training Sunday afternoon, as it's supposed to be. What would you be doing right now? Yeah, probably at a spring training game in Goodyear or wherever else they would have been scheduled to play in Arizona. And I don't know, you know, just kind of following with the roster battles if uh, this was a regular spring. And yet, here we are talking about a lockout and news that you reported um, in the last day or two is that uh, they had a vote, and there were a handful of owners, apparently, who voted against the agreement that had been, I guess, looked upon there, one of which was Bob Castellini, who's the front man of the Reds' ownership group. What was the difference uh, between uh, the agreement and what they wanted and what was presented, that the Diamondbacks, the Reds, the Angels, and uh, was there somebody else who also voted against this? Yeah, there were four owners, uh, Bob Castellini, uh, Artie Moreno from the Angels, uh, Ken Kendrick from the Diamondbacks. There you go. And um, so those four those four, basically are fighting the competitive balance tax, which is the luxury tax. Um, baseball doesn't have a salary cap, but this is basically the upper limit. Teams spend more than that, they get taxed uh, a penalty. Um, the Reds want it, you know, Bob Castellini wants it lower. He wants it at 200, it was 210 million last year. Um, the proposal from the owners was $220 million, so just a $10 million increase. Um, but apparently he wants it to be the same, and which would kind of cap the Dodgers and the Mets and some of the teams that are willing to spend a lot more money. Um, kind of, they're, they're penalized a lot more um, if, if they do spend above that threshold. So basically the smaller market teams, I don't know about how LA's Angels play into that or Anaheim, whatever they are now. Uh, Cincinnati clearly a smaller market team. Arizona Diamondbacks. I guess that's a smaller market team compared certainly to Los Angeles and some others. Uh, so the smaller market teams obviously would benefit from keeping it at 210 rather than 220, even though it sounds like a small amount of money when you're talking those dollars. It's still a huge amount of dough, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you're just looking at it as, like, Arizona. I could see them potentially against it just because the Dodgers, I mean, they, they had a $280 million payroll this year. Um, so they were willing to go well past the $210 million to try to win a World Series. Mm. Um, and they're in the same division, so I'm sure they want to kind of curb that. 
Um, and I'm sure Bob Castellini looks at it for the Reds. I mean, I, I don't see the Reds ever approaching being one of the highest spending teams in baseball. Um, so for them, I mean, I, I think it's just trying to look at it in terms of trying to keep the Mets and trying to keep the Dodgers down. Um, it, it, and I just don't see the Reds, you know, kind of approaching that number. So they look at it as, you know, a harder cap kind of helps the smaller market teams. Yeah, trying to defend themselves in the best way that they can. So it's as much almost in some fashion as owners negotiating with each other for competitiveness as it is for players trying to get a, a bigger piece of the pie also. I mean, there's a lot of layers to this negotiation as it goes forward. What is the biggest holdup, do you think, to this point? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest holdup because the players, you know, I mentioned 220 versus 210. That's just the owner's proposal. Uh, the players want it to be closer to like 240 in the first year. Um, and then by the end of the five-year agreement, it would go up to around $275 million, uh, because the players see it as if the Dodgers and Mets want to spend a lot on players, you know, why penalize them? Let, let them do that. Um, it, I, I don't know if it solves the competitive balance. You know, I, I don't know. You're always going to have kind of that question that's out there. I mean, does, do small market teams, can they compete with higher payroll? You look at, like, the Oakland A's and then Tampa Bay Rays, they've been able to do it uh, very consistently over the past decade. But that's kind of the big question for baseball is what? how, how can you make it in a competitive league if you don't have a salary cap? It's a challenging thing. Uh, of the other major uh, professional sports, who doesn't have a salary cap? And, and, and I mean, we obviously know about the parity and, and, and how the NFL works to a great extent. Uh, they're part of it. Uh, and who else actually handles their business in a similar way to what we're talking about? Well, they would probably you'd probably have to look outside of the United States. I mean, like you look at like soccer, um, they don't have a salary cap. Uh, but the four of the four major professional sports in the United States, you know, NBA, NHL, NFL, those three do have salary caps. Now, you could look at it as also, and I've kind of debated um, writing a story about it. I mean, it's just the fact that if you expand the playoffs, um, you know, those three other sports, NFL, NBA, NHL, they have more teams in the playoffs every year almost half the league or maybe more than half the league right. uh, qualifies for the playoffs. And the Reds, I mean, under the there will be at least 12 teams in the playoffs next year, um, so six per league, maybe up to seven, so 14 total teams. So the Reds would have made the playoffs last year um, under the revised format system. So, I mean, does that kind of change how people view the competitive balance? Um, in Cincinnati, if the Reds would have made the playoffs two years in a row, um, you know, I, th I think people would have looked at it a little bit differently locally, just the fact that, um, you know, Reds would have been a playoff team even if they only won 83 games. Yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, when you look at the NBA and who gets into the postseason, which is wild, and mo a lot of people don't even care until it gets there. And, and NHL's, you know, another thing, too, when you look at the sheer number. Uh, and then uh, MLS is a, a different thing altogether. Uh, talking to Bobby Nightingale Jr., uh, he uh, is the beat writer for the Inquirer following the Reds, although there's not a lot of Red stuff going on. It's the business of... Uh, well, the business of business, I, I guess, in, in relation to this. Uh, where do the, There's no negotiation. There's no business of player development going on other than minor leaguers at this point. Is that correct? It's just a matter of these big leaguers handling their own uh, health and, and, and trying to be as prepared as possible for hopefully uh, a deal being done so they can get back to work and, and getting ready for this season. Is that accurate or no? Yeah, so like at the Goodyear Complex right now, the spring training complex, it's all minor leaguers. Uh, the minor league season will begin on time in early April. So that, that's not affected at all. Those players are getting ready for the season. Uh, major leaguers are just basically on standby at home, just waiting. Um, you know, some, play, some guys are, you know, in Arizona and Florida just kind of gathering 
um, you know, being more prepared, working out facilities. Um, but they can't do anything until there's the lockout ends. And um, there's negotiations today between the players and the owners. Um, but until that happens, you know, players can't have any contact. Major League players can't have any contact. Uh, like no Reds player can talk to David Bell or the pitching coach or hitting coach. Uh, so they're just kind of waiting till till the lockout ends. That's wild. Um, how far away are the Reds, do you think, from having the roster where it needs to be? Because, I mean, it seems that there's a whole lot of people who are unsigned and a whole lot of other deals that are sort of all hinging upon this progressing so that they can go to work and we're still yet to get to spring training. I mean, there's a lot of bits and pieces and moving parts before they can even get to the business of getting on the field and handling business on baseball. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at just because the lockout when it started in December 2nd, you know, that's two months of the offseason that never happened. Um, and now, now three months now that we're in March, um, and it still have to happen. So I think you're going to have – it's like the biggest question is how how are teams going to react just because you have hundreds of unsigned for agents, trades to be made. Um, so it could be a wild time in terms of what's going to happen after there's an agreement just because um, every team still has that two months of offseason to figure out what they wanted to do. Um, the Reds specifically, I think they want to add some bullpen arms. I could see them adding the guy, the starting pitcher for the rotation. So there's there's still a lot to be done. Um, It's just going to all happen within a week after the lockout ends. And, um, you know, I think that'll bring some excitement for the fans' sake, just having that happen, just because it'll be quite a rush. What's the vibe that you have talking to people about their interest? I mean, I'm itching for it, especially with the warm weather. But, I mean, I've talked to neighbors, friends, coworkers, uh, people listening. I consider friends, too. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Uh, emailing, et cetera. I mean, there seems to be, at least by what people are saying, that, that there's some dissatisfaction, aggravation, and, and bitterness, and in some cases resentment about this taking place. I'm not going to mention the whole rich, you know, billionaires versus millionaires thing. That, I, I'm not worried about that. I mean, I, I want everybody to get whatever they can get, just like I'm trying to get mine. But in, in the scheme of things, it's a problem. It seemed, are you hearing a majority of people like I am saying that they're just sick and tired of it and don't care? Do you think it's lip service or is this legit? I think people don't care to, an, to a degree. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think anyone really cares which side, you know, the players and the owners. There's a PR battle along with this lockout right now, um, you know, trying to sway public opinion. And there are people who, you know, hang on the daily what's going to happen today, what's going to happen tomorrow. But I think most fans are just kind of of the take, you know, call me when baseball starts and um, we'll see how much I care about it based on how long this lockout takes and how much of the season is missed. Um, But, you know, I I just think there's a lot of frustration around it. Um, But I also think when you have that free agency frenzy, when you have the trades all happen within a week, uh, when the season gets started, you have people excited about spring training again. I, I do think a lot of people will come back. I just, you know, there's a lot of other sports that went through lockouts in the past decade. NFL, NBA, NHL have all done it. Um, so I don't think it's a death nail for the sport. I just think it's a frustrating time for a lot of fans. Absolutely. Bobby Nightingale Jr. covers the Reds for the Inquirer, Cincinnati.com. Uh, whether it's Florida or whether it's Arizona, spring training's probably close to two weeks away after any deal getting done correct or at least spring training games so what what is the expected turnaround time in function if they were to sign a deal right here right now as we speak before they would be able to get to work and and be ready to to handle business 
even in the desert before they get to Great American Ballpark for opening day, whatever that is. Yeah, so I saw on Friday, you know, Major League Baseball, they canceled all spring training games until March 18th. So best-case scenario, say you had a deal come out this afternoon. Um, you know, they would not play any games before March 18th. So you're looking at you still have a few weeks before games would begin um, because you probably look at they'd open facilities right away, um, but you're probably thinking a week to 10 days for most players to get there um, because, you know, say, say, say you're Joey Votto, um, I don't know if he's in Toronto, Canada right now as we speak, but if he was, you know, it takes time to get from there to Arizona. If you're Luis Castillo in the Dominican Republic, um, you know, you have to secure a visa and then come to the United States for spring training. So it, it, it's going to take some time once there's a deal to get everyone in camp. Um, and it, that'll be the frustrating thing, I think, for players. is um, It's kind of a rush to get ready for the start of the season because, um, you know, it's, it's not like they're going to keep pushing back the season to make sure players are ready. Um, you know, they're going to have three or four weeks, um, and then the season's going to start. So we're looking at probably, they've already officially said what the first two series of the regular season are not happening. And, and uh, you know, we're on the cusp of maybe a third or a fourth week, too, considering that was announced like a week ago or more, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, are are they going to try to make up these games, double headers and stuff? And I know we're retreading some of our past conversations over a couple of weeks here, but... I mean, it's all still this weird unknown. I mean, if you're a season ticket holder, you're trying to plan weekend getaways, whatever, either to follow the team or come to Cincinnati or whatever team you follow if it's not the Reds. I mean, there's a lot of parts and pieces to people's lives uh, as a part of this, aside from just the business of, of the business of baseball. Yeah, I mean, MLB, the owner side, I mean, that's they, they've been saying these games are canceled and they will not be made up um, and players will not be paid for a 162-game season. Now, the players are going to fight to say, you know, we, we deserve to be paid for a 162-game season because the owner side's canceling the games. It's not like, uh, you know, the players chose to have these games canceled. And as you mentioned, it's not like you can't make them up at the at the end or find ways with doubleheaders to, to make it add up to 162. So I, I think that's just another fight that you're adding on to the lockout at, the, at this time, just based off the fact that, you know, you're fighting over the luxury tax, you're fighting over um, – you know, how much to pay young players through arbitration right now. Um, and now that you have to add the, add on at the end, you know, how many games are they going to get paid for and how many games are they going to actually play? It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because you, you look at the, the idea of stadium funding. You, you look at the idea of all the development that is uh, – and there's one thing about being – you know, I, I've lived in cities that were not NFL or a Major League Baseball cities, and there's a difference just in the vibe and the energy, the attention – uh, internationally, especially when you look at you know baseball and MLS and stuff along those lines, uh, in highlighting it, but all the businesses and stuff you know around the banks, in and around downtown, all, you know the hotels. Uh, I mean, you you think about all the other attractions, a part of it, and that's you know every major league city. I mean, there's a lot of people who have already struggled, and maybe I guess baseball, it's not their worry, right? I mean, just because you opened a bar or a restaurant within walking distance or parking distance of the ballpark, that's nice. But they're worried about people buying tickets, TV revenue, radio business, and everything associated with that more so, right? I mean, all the other is just sort of collateral damage, from, which is a dangerous term to use in the midst of the chaos globally right now. But that's really what it boils down to, or am I off base? No, yeah. I mean, I think they're concerned about their main money bases, which right now is playoff money, um, TV revenues, and, you know, how much teams are going to spend on player payroll. Uh, but, you know, that's the unfortunate thing is there's – the thing about baseball, and because it's an everyday sport, because it happens in the summer, um, there's so many businesses that depend on it. 
Um, you mentioned the banks, you know, how, how much money that generates. Um, you know, I, I think that's the frustrating part if there's canceled games and whether it's in April or later in the summer just because uh, based off of the fact that you're going to lose money for those businesses. Now, uh, we're short on time, and I appreciate you being so free with it, especially when there is no baseball, still talking about baseball, which is great. Bobby Nightingale Jr. with the Acquirer uh, with Sterling on the big one. I saw something. They're also talking about, we've talked about the DH. We talked about all these other moves of how the game's going to change, timing pitches and all the other stuff to speed up the game if that's worked. I saw something about oversized base bags. Is that legit? And and that is strange as all get out to me. And what is the point of that? Yeah, so they did use that in AAA last year, um, and all, all the AAA teams experimented with it. Basically, the idea is, one, prevent injuries at first base, um, just, just because, you know, guys are flying down the line, uh, more room not to get their foot stepped on by the first baseman or vice versa, okay. uh, a runner stepping on the first baseman. And then also a chance to potentially increase stolen bases. You know, teams are so hesitant to have at, even attempt steals these days. Um and I think the idea behind oversized bags is, okay, so instead of making it 90 feet bag to bag, maybe if it's 85 and a half, does that encourage a little bit more stolen bases? Because these all are, you know, bang, bang plays. Um, so they tested that out just to see if that would increase steals. And um, if that increases the percentage of successful stolen bases, um, you know, maybe it comes back to the major leagues that way. That's kind of wild. I mean, already that, that, you know, I've mentioned this to you in the past. We've talked about it and just, you know, over beers with other people, the idea of small ball on over in and that mentality. And a lot of people go, no, it's all about the home run. They got to score more runs. Like, well, that's how you score more runs. If you get somebody on, then you can hit the home run or something along those lines. You know, they, oh, it's about offense. But there seems to be a reluctance. You think that six inches would be enough to, to sort of spark the more aggressiveness on the base pads, whether it's a Jonathan India who likes to run or somebody along those lines? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't play anywhere in high school at some point. They were like, dude, you need to quit. Go somewhere else. I was like, okay. But I, I just – I love the game. It just seems weird that that's what would make a difference as far as aggressiveness. Yeah, I mean, I think they're trying to trying to solve a lot of things with different ideas. I mean, it's it's the same concept as you know banning shifts um, or making you know every infielder stay on the dirt or two guys on one side of the bag. I I think that's just one component of it is just saying okay, if we can try to find ways to add stolen bases. Um, you know, another thing they tested in the lower minor leagues is um, limiting pickoff attempts. You know, you're only allowed two pickoff attempts. Right. Uh, Per, per runner, and if you exceed that, then the guy gets, it's basically like a balk and a guy gets to advance the base. So I, I think they're just trying to experiment with different things and oversized bag. One, is, it has a safety element, um, but also two, I mean, you just look at how close all those plays are, how many plays stolen bases go to replay reviews. Um, you know, maybe six inches does make that big of a difference where, um, you know, you a guy would be a lot more successful if you did try to steal bases. As long as I don't just force you to keep your foot on first so you can't steal. I just, that, that, then they get really ridiculous, but that's a whole other thing. I, I look forward to talking to you more about the, the nuts and bolts of the game and these changes once they ever get back to the game. Thank you for giving us some time and an update and perspective of what's going on around the major leagues and certainly following the Reds is always good reading uh, and good conversation. Bobby Nightingale Jr. from the Inquirer. Thanks, my man. I appreciate you making time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk to you again soon. I'm not done yet. Still a little bit of time before Audi steps in. More Sterling, 700 WLW. 
For a hundred years or so, we've heard you say... I could do a better job than all you bums. Well, we agree. It's about time. And here's your chance to prove it. We're giving away 700 WLW. Hold on. What? Listen up. Five lucky winners will get to co-host on air with their favorite host. Get on the mic with McConnell. I'm better than him. Have your say with Sloney. I'm better than him. Match wits with Willie. I'm better than him. Make it a three-way with Eddie and Rocky. I'm better than him. Or lay it down with Lance. I'm better than him. You want to be a radio star? Here's your chance. A radio star. Be listening for your shot to register or check out 700WLW.com. The Ridiculous Crime Podcast proves that true crime isn't always about mayhem and murder. Sometimes it's just silly. Take it. Calls and messages on Twitter and everywhere else. We're talking to Dr. David Shetler, the bug doctor from Ohio State, about spiders and bugs for the summer. And talk bog fest, which makes me thirsty. I need to go get some good food now. And Ukraine, Russia, Bobby Nightingale Jr. from the Choir on the Reds. More sports stuff ahead. Our man Audie, Austin Elmore is next following uh, Mr. Crumley in your 3 o'clock report. I'm Sterling. Alex, thanks for producing the show and doing a good job. Talk to you Friday night right here. Home of the Reds when they get back at it. Those winning uh, Musketeers uh, last night. And, and of course, uh, some tournament action straight away with the, the Bearcats and the Muskies this week on 700 WLW Cincinnati. News, traffic, and weather. News Radio 700 WLW, Cincinnati. Trying to get refugees out, but the shelling's not stopping. With the 3 o'clock report, I'm Jack Crumley. Breaking now, there has been a second failed attempt at a ceasefire in the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol. As Ukrainian officials say, Russians never stopped shelling. ABC's Aaron Katursky has more in Lviv, Ukraine. The Red Cross had buses from Mariupol lined up. It told civilians to board the buses. They'd be taken on a prearranged corridor out to, to another community, Zaporizhia. And apparently, according to the Ukrainian military, the shelling did not stop. So we're not sure the status of those evacuees or, or what's happened. On CBS's Face the Nation this morning, U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, said that the influx of one and a half million refugees into five countries surrounding Ukraine may be the fastest exodus of people in Europe since World War II. He says one of the biggest issues facing the U.N. and the Red Cross is Russia's refusal to comply with ceasefire. Now the latest traffic and weather together. Got a couple problems to warn you about. Northbound 75 in Kentucky. First off, got a backup going on just north of the split. As you approach Richwood, that's where you're on the brakes. Things should get back to normal by the time you get around uh, the exit to Kentucky 536. That is Mount Zion Road. But as you continue north on 75, we are now seeing a very solid backup of traffic coming down the cut in the hill. You're on the brakes before you get to Kyle's Lane, and you stay very slow trying to get across the Brent Spence Bridge. There had been reports of a broken down in the air area of the bridge. Had a report about a wreck that was causing problems westbound Ronald Reagan near Colerain. Not seeing any backups in that area right now. Now, the latest forecast from the Advanced Industry Weather Center. Are you afraid of the dentist? At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. To learn more about how IV sedation can change your life, visit nofeardentist.com.